Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 29 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 29 She had walked up the railroad track with Hugh this Sunday afternoon. She saw Eric Valborg coming, in an ancient high-water suit, tramping sullenly and alone, striking at the rails with a stick. For a second she unreasoningly wanted to avoid him, but she kept on, and she serenely talked about God, whose voice, Hugh asserted, made the humming in the telegraph wires. Eric stared, straightened. They greeted each other with, Hello. Hugh, say how do you do to Mr. Valborg? Oh, dear me, he's got a button unbuttoned, worried Eric, kneeling. Carol frowned, then noted the strength with which he swung the baby in the air. May I walk along a piece with you? I'm tired. Let's rest on those ties. Then I must be trotting back. They sat on a heap of discarded railroad ties, oak logs spotted with cinnamon-colored dry rot and marked with metallic brown streaks where iron plates had rested. Hugh learned that the pile was the hiding-place of engines. He went gunning for them while the elders talked of uninteresting things. The telegraph wires thrummed, thrummed, thrummed above them. The rails were glaring hard lines. The goldenrod smelled dusty. Across the track was a pasture of dwarf clover and sparse lawn, cut by earthy cow-paths. Beyond its placid narrow green, the rough immensity of the new stubble, jagged with wheat-stacks like huge pineapples. Eric talked of books. Flame like a recent convert to any faith. He exhibited as many titles and authors as possible, halting only to appeal. "'Have you read his last book? Don't you think he's a terribly strong writer?' She was dizzy. But when he insisted, "'You've been a librarian. Tell me, do I read too much fiction?' She advised him loftily, rather discursively. He had, she indicated, never studied. He had skipped from one emotion to another. Especially, she hesitated, then flung it at him, he must not guess at pronunciations. He must endure the nuisance of stopping to reach for the dictionary. I'm talking like a cranky teacher, she sighed. No, and I will study. Read the damn dictionary right through. He crossed his legs and bent over, clutching his ankle with both hands. I know what you mean. I've been rushing from picture to picture, like a kid loose in an art gallery for the first time. You see, it's so awful recent that I found there was a world, well, a world where beautiful things counted. I was on the farm till I was nineteen. Dad was a good farmer, but nothing else. Do you know why he first sent me off to learn tailoring? I wanted to study drawing, and he had a cousin that made a lot of money tailoring out in Dakota, and he said tailoring was a lot like drawing, so he sent me down to a punk hole called Curlew to work in a tailor shop. Up to that time I'd only had three months schooling a year, 
walk to school two miles, do snow up to my knees, and Dad never would stand for my having a single book except school books. I never read a novel till I got Dorothy Vernon of Haddon Hall out of the library at Curlew. I thought it was the loveliest thing in the world. Next I read Barriers Burned Away, and then Pope's translation of Homer. Some combination, all right. When I went to Minneapolis, just two years ago, I guess I'd read pretty much everything in that Curlew library, but I'd never heard of Rossetti or John Sargent or Balzac or Brahms. But, yup, I'll study. Look here, shall I get out of this tailoring, this pressing and repairing? I don't see why a surgeon should spend very much time cobbling shoes. But what if I find I can't really draw and design? After fussing around in New York or Chicago, I'd feel like a fool if I had to go back to work in a gent's furnishing store. Please, say haberdashery. Haberdashery? All right. I'll remember. He shrugged and spread his fingers wide. She was humbled by his humility. She put away in her mind, to take out and worry over later, a speculation as to whether it was not she who was naive. She urged, "'What if you do have to go back? Most of us do. We can't all be artists. Myself, for instance. We have to darn socks, and yet we're not content to think of nothing but socks and darning cotton. I demand all I could get, whether I finally settle down to designing frocks or building temples or pressing pants. What if you do drop back? You'll have had the adventure. Don't be too meek toward life. Go. You're young, you're unmarried. Try everything. Don't listen to Nat Hicks and Sam Clark and be a steady young man in order to help them make money. You're still a blessed innocent. Go and play till the good people capture you. But I don't just want to play. I want to make something beautiful. God, and I don't know enough. Do you get it? Do you understand? Nobody else ever has. Do you understand? Yes. And so? But here's what bothers me. I like fabrics, dinky things like that, little drawings and elegant words. But look over there at those fields. Big, new. Don't it seem kind of a shame to leave this and go back to the East and Europe and do what all those people have been doing so long? Being careful about words when there's millions of bushels of wheat here. Reading this fellow Pater when I've helped Dad to clear fields. It's good to clear fields, but it's not for you. It's one of our favorite American myths that broad plains necessarily make broad minds, and high mountains make high purpose. I thought that myself when I first came to the prairie. Big, new. Oh, I don't want to deny the prairie future. It will be magnificent. But equally, I'm hanged if I want to be bullied by it, go to war on behalf of Main Street, be bullied and bullied by the faith that the future is already here in the present, and that all of us must stay and worship wheat stacks and insist that this is God's country, and never, of course, do anything original or gay-colored that would help to make that future. Anyway, you don't belong here. Sam Clark and Nat Hicks, that's what our big newness has produced. Go, before it's too late, as it has been for—for for some of us. Young man, go east 
and grow up with the revolution. Then perhaps you may come back and tell Sam and Nat and me what to do with the land we've been clearing, if we'll listen, if we don't lynch you first. He looked at her reverently. She could hear him saying, I've always wanted to know a woman who would talk to me like that. Her hearing was faulty. He was saying nothing of the sort. He was saying, Why aren't you happy with your husband? I... you... He doesn't care for the blessed innocent part of you, does he? Eric, you mustn't. First, you tell me to go and be free, and then you say that I mustn't. I know. But you mustn't. You must be more impersonal." He glowered at her like a downy young owl. She wasn't sure, but she thought that he muttered, I'm damned if I will. She considered with wholesome fear the perils of meddling with other people's destinies, and she said timidly, Hadn't we better start back now? He mused. You're younger than I am. Your lips are for songs about rivers in the morning and lakes at twilight. I don't see how anybody could ever hurt you. Yes, we better go." He trudged beside her, his eyes averted. Hugh experimentally took his thumb. He looked down at the baby seriously. He burst out, "'All right. I'll do it. I'll stay here one year, save, not spend so much money on clothes. And then I'll go east, to art school, work on the side, tailor shop, dressmakers. I'll learn what I'm good for, designing clothes, stage settings, illustrating, or selling collars to fat men. All settled." He peered at her, unsmiling. "'Can you stand it here in town for a year?' "'With you to look at?' "'Please. I mean, don't the people here think you're an odd bird? They do me, I assure you.' I don't know. I never noticed much. Oh, they do kid me about not being in the army, especially the old war horses, the old men that aren't going themselves. And this Bogart boy, and Mr. Hicks's son, he's a horrible brat. But probably he's licensed to say what he thinks about his father's hired man. He's beastly. They were in town. They passed Aunt Bessie's house. Aunt Bessie and Mrs. Bogart were at the window and Carol saw that they were staring so intently that they answered her wave only with the stiffly raised hands of automatons. In the next block Mrs. Dr. Westlake was gaping from her porch. Carol said with an embarrassed quaver, "'I want to run in and see Mrs. Westlake. I'll say good-bye here.' She avoided his eyes. Mrs. Westlake was affable. Carol felt that she was expected to explain and while she was mentally asserting that she'd be hanged if she'd explain, she was explaining. Hugh captured that Valborg boy up the track. They became such good friends, and I talked to him for a while. I'd heard he was eccentric, but really I found him quite intelligent. Crude, but he reads. Reads almost the way Dr. Westlake does. That's fine. Why does he stick here in town? What's this I hear about his being interested in Myrtle Cass? I don't know, is he? I'm sure he isn't. He said he was quite lonely. Besides, Myrtle is a babe in arms. Twenty-one if she's a day. Well, is the doctor going to do any hunting this fall? 2. 
the need of explaining Eric dragged her back into doubting. For all his ardent reading and his ardent life, was he anything but a small-town youth bred on an illiberal farm and in cheap tailor-shops? He had rough hands. She had been attracted only by hands that were fine and suave, like those of her father. Delicate hands and resolute purpose. But this boy, powerful seamed hands and flabby will. It's not appealing weakness like his, but sane strength that will animate the gopher prairies. Only does that mean anything? Or am I echoing Vida? The world has always let strong statesmen and soldiers, the men with strong voices, take control, and what have the thundering boobies done? What is strength? This classifying of people. I suppose tailors differ as much as burglars or kings. Eric frightened me when he turned on me. Of course he didn't mean anything, but I mustn't let him be so personal. Amazing impertinence! But he didn't mean to be. His hands are firm. I wonder if sculptors don't have thick hands, too. Of course, if there really isn't anything I can do to help the boy, though I despise these people who interfere, he must be independent. 3. She wasn't altogether pleased the week after when Eric was independent and, without asking for her inspiration, planned the tennis tournament. It proved that he had learned to play in Minneapolis, that, next to Juanita Haydock, he had the best serve in town. Tennis was well spoken of in Gopher Prairie and almost never played. There were three courts, one belonging to Harry Haydock, one to the cottages at the lake, and one, a rough field on the outskirts, laid out by a defunct tennis association. Eric had been seen in flannels and an imitation Panama hat, playing on the abandoned court with Willis Woodford, the clerk in Stowbody's bank. Suddenly he was going about proposing the reorganization of the Tennis Association, and writing names in a fifteen-cent notebook bought for the purpose at Dyer's. When he came to Carroll he was so excited over being an organizer that he did not stop to talk of himself and Aubrey Beardsley for more than ten minutes. He begged, Will you get some of the folks to come in?" And she nodded agreeably. He proposed an informal exhibition match to advertise the association. He suggested that Carol and himself, the Haydocks, the Woodfords, and the Dillons play doubles, and that the association be formed from the gathered enthusiasts. He had asked Harry Haydock to be tentative president. Harry, he reported, had promised, "'All right, you bet. But you go ahead and arrange things, and I'll okay em. Eric planned that the match should be held Saturday afternoon on the old public court at the edge of town. He was happy in being, for the first time, part of Gopher Prairie. Through the week Carol heard how select an attendance there was to be. Kennicott growled that he didn't care to go. Had he any objections to her playing with Eric? No, sure not. She needed the exercise. Carol went to the match early. The court was in a meadow out on the new Antonia Road. Only Eric was there. He was dashing about with a rake, trying to make the court somewhat less like a plowed field. He admitted that he had stage fright at the thought of the coming horde. Willis and Mrs. Woodford arrived, Willis in homemade knickers and black sneakers threw at the toe. Then Dr. and Mrs. Harvey Dillon, people as harmless and grateful as the Woodfords.
Carol was embarrassed and excessively agreeable, like the bishop's lady trying not to feel out of place at a Baptist bazaar. They waited. The match was scheduled for three. As spectators there assembled one youthful grocery clerk, stopping his Ford delivery wagon to stare from the seat, and one solemn small boy, tugging a small sister who had a careless nose. "'I wonder where the haydocks are. They ought to show up at least,' said Eric. Carol smiled confidently at him and peered down the empty road toward town. Only heat waves and dust and dusty weeds. At half-past three no one had come, and the grocery boy reluctantly got out, cranked his Ford, glared at them in a disillusioned manner, and rattled away. The small boy and his sister ate grass and sighed. The players pretended to be exhilarated by practicing service, but they startled at each dust cloud from a motor car. None of the cars turned into the meadow, none till a quarter to four when Kennicott drove in. Carol's heart swelled. How loyal he is! Depend on him! He'd come if nobody else did, even though he doesn't care for the game. The old darling! Kennicott did not alight. He called out, Carrie! Harry Haydock phoned me that they decided to hold the tennis matches, or whatever you call them, down at the cottages at the lake instead of here. The bunch are down there now. Haydocks and Dyers and Clarks and everybody. Harry wanted to know if I'd bring you down. I guess it can take the time. Come right back after supper." Before Carol could sum it all up, Eric stammered, "'Why, Haydock didn't say anything to me about the change. Of course, he's the president, but—' Kennicott looked at him heavily and grunted. I don't know a thing about it. Coming, Carrie? I am not. The match was to be here, and it will be here. You can tell Harry Haydock that he's beastly rude. She rallied the five who had been left out, who would always be left out. Come on, let's toss to see which four of us will play the only and original first annual tennis tournament of Forest Hills, Del Monte, and Gopher Prairie. Don't know as I blame you," said Kennicott. We'll have supper at home, then. He drove off. She hated him for his composure. He had ruined her defiance. She felt much less like Susan B. Anthony as she turned to her huddled followers. Mrs. Dillon and Willis Woodford lost the toss. The others played out the game, slowly, painfully, stumbling on the rough earth, muffing the easiest shots watched only by the small boy and his sniveling sister. Beyond the court stretched the eternal stubble-fields, the four marionettes awkwardly going through exercises, insignificant in the hot sweep of contemptuous land, were not heroic. Their voices did not ring out in the score, but sounded apologetic. And when the game was over they glanced about as though they were waiting to be laughed at. They walked home. Carol took Eric's arm. Through her thin linen sleeve she could feel the crumply warmth of his familiar brown jersey coat. She observed that there were purple and red-gold threads interwoven with the brown. She remembered the first time she had seen it. Their talk was nothing but improvisations on the theme. I never did like this, Haydock. He just considers his own convenience. Ahead of them the Dillons and Woodford spoke of the weather, and B. J. Gogerling's new bungalow. No one referred to their tennis tournament. At her gate Carol shook hands firmly with Eric and smiled at him. 
Next morning, Sunday morning, when Carol was on the porch, the Haydocks drove up. "'We didn't mean to be rude to you, dearie,' implored Juanita. "'I wouldn't have you think that for anything. We planned that Will and you should come down and have supper at our cottage.' "'No, I'm sure you didn't mean to be.' Carol was super-neighborly. "'But I do think you ought to apologize to poor Eric Valborg. He was terribly hurt.' Oh, Valborg, I don't care so much what he thinks," objected Harry. He's nothing but a conceited Budinsky. Juanita and I kind of figured he was trying to run this tennis thing too darn much anyway. But you asked him to make arrangements. I know, but I don't like him. Good Lord, you couldn't hurt his feelings. He dresses up like a chorus man, and by golly, he looks like one. But he's nothing but a Swede farm boy and these foreigners, they all got hides like a covey of rhinoceroses. But he is hurt. Well, I don't suppose I ought to have gone off half-cocked and not jollied him along. I'll give him a cigar. He'll—' Juanita had been licking her lips and staring at Carol. She interrupted her husband. Yes, I do think Harry ought to fix it up with him. You like him, don't you, Carol? Over and through, Carol ran a frightened cautiousness. "'Like him? I haven't an idea. He seems to be a very decent young man. I just felt that, when he'd worked so hard on the plans for the match, it was a shame not to be nice to him.' "'Maybe there's something to that,' mumbled Harry. Then, at sight of Kennicott coming round the corner, tugging the red garden hose by its brass nozzle, he roared in relief, "'What do you think you're trying to do, Doc?' while Kennicott explained in detail all that he thought he was trying to do, while he rubbed his chin and gravely stated, "'Struck me the grass was looking kind of brown in patches. Didn't know but what I'd give it a sprinkling.' And while Harry agreed that this was an excellent idea, Juanita made friendly noises and, behind the gilt screen of an affectionate smile, watched Carol's face. 4. She wanted to see Eric. She wanted someone to play with. There wasn't even so dignified and sound an excuse as having Kennicott's trousers pressed. When she inspected them, all three pairs looked discouragingly neat. She probably would not have ventured on it had she not spied Nat Hicks in the pool parlor, being witty over bottle pool. Eric was alone. She fluttered toward the tailor shop dashed into its slovenly heat with the comic fastidiousness of a hummingbird dipping into a dry tiger-lily. It was after she had entered that she found an excuse. Eric was in the back room, cross-legged on a long table, sewing a vest. But he looked as though he were doing this eccentric thing to amuse himself. "'Hello. I wonder if you couldn't plan a sports suit for me,' she said breathlessly. He stared at her. He protested. "'No, I won't. God, I'm not going to be a tailor with you." "'Why, Eric,' she said, like a mildly shocked mother. It occurred to her that she did not need a suit, and that the order might have been hard to explain to a Kennicott. He swung down from the table. "'I want to show you something.' He rummaged in the roll-top desk on which Nat Hicks kept bills, buttons, calendars, buckles, thread-channeled wax, shotgun shells, samples of brocade for fancy vests, 
fishing reels, pornographic postcards, shreds of buckram lining. He pulled out a blurred sheet of Bristol board and anxiously gave it to her. It was a sketch for a frock. It was not well drawn. It was too finicking. The pillars in the background were grotesquely squat. But the frock had an original back, very low, with a central triangular section from the waist to a string of jet beads at the neck. It's stunning! But how it would shock Mrs. Clark! Yes, wouldn't it? You must let yourself go more when you're drawing. Don't know if I can. I've started kind of late. But listen, what do you think I've done this two weeks? I've read almost clear through a Latin grammar and about twenty pages of Caesar. Splendid! You are lucky. You haven't a teacher to make you artificial. You're my teacher. There was a dangerous edge of personality to his voice. She was offended and agitated. She turned her shoulder on him, stared through the back window, studying this typical center of a typical Main Street block, a vista hidden from casual strollers. The backs of the chief establishments in town surrounded a quadrangle, neglected, dirty, and incomparably dismal. From the front, Howlin and Gould's grocery was smug enough but attached to the rear was a lean-to of storm-streaked pine lumber with a sanded tar roof. A staggering doubtful shed, behind which was a heap of ashes, splintered packing-boxes, shreds of excelsior, crumpled straw-board, broken olive-bottles, rotten fruit and utterly disintegrated vegetables, orange carrots turning black, and potatoes with ulcers. The rear of the Bon Ton store was grim with blistered, black-painted iron shutters, under them a pile of once glossy red shirt-boxes, now a pulp from recent rain. As seen from Main Street, Olison and McGuire's meat market had a sanitary and virtuous expression with its new tile counter, fresh sawdust on the floor and a hanging veal cut in rosettes. But she now viewed a back room with a homemade refrigerator of yellow smeared with black grease. A man in an apron spotted with dry blood was hoisting out a hard slab of meat. Behind Billy's lunch, the cook, in an apron which must long ago have been white, smoked a pipe and spat at the pest of sticky flies. In the center of the block, by itself, was the stable for the three horses of the drayman, and beside it a pile of manure. The rear of Ezra Stobody's bank was whitewashed, and the back of it was a concrete walk and a three-foot square of grass but the window was barred, and behind the bars she saw Willis Woodford cramped over figures in pompous books. He raised his head, jerkily rubbed his eyes, and went back to the eternity of figures. The backs of the other shops were an impressionistic picture of dirty greys, drained browns, writhing heaps of refuse. Mine is a backyard romance with a journeyman tailor. She was saved from self-pity as she began to think through Eric's mind. She turned to him with an indignant, "'It's disgusting that this is all you have to look at.' He considered it. "'Outside there? I don't notice much. I'm learning to look inside. Not awful easy.' "'Yes. I must be hurrying.' As she walked home, without hurrying, she remembered her father saying to a serious ten-year-old Carol, "'Lady, only a fool thinks he's superior to beautiful bindings.' but only a double-distilled fool reads nothing but bindings." She was startled by the return of her father. 
startled by a sudden conviction that in this flaxen boy she had found the grey reticent judge who was divine love, perfect understanding. She debated it, furiously denied it, reaffirmed it, ridiculed it. Of one thing she was unhappily certain, there was nothing of the beloved father image in Will Kennicott. 5. She wondered why she sang so often, and why she found so many pleasant things, lamplight seen through trees on a cool evening, sunshine on brown wood, morning sparrows, black sloping roofs turned to plates of silver by moonlight. Pleasant things, small friendly things, and pleasant places, a field of goldenrod, a pasture by the creek, and suddenly a wealth of pleasant people. Vida was lenient to Carol at the surgical dressing class. Mrs. Dave Dyer flattered her with questions about her health, baby, cook, and opinions on the war. Mrs. Dyer seemed not to share the town's prejudice against Eric. "'He's a nice-looking fellow. We must have him go on one of our picnics sometime.' Unexpectedly, Dave Dyer also liked him. The tight-fisted little farceur had a confused reverence for anything that seemed to him refined or clever. He answered Harry Haydock's sneers. "'That's all right now. Elizabeth may doll himself up too much, but he's smart, and don't you forget it. I was asking round trying to find out where this Ukraine is, and darn if he didn't tell me. What's the matter with his talking so polite? Hell's bells, Harry. No harm in being polite. There's some regular he-men who are just as polite as women, pert near. Carol found herself going about rejoicing. How neighborly the town is! She drew up with a dismayed, Am I falling in love with this boy? That's ridiculous. I'm merely interested in him. I like to think of helping him to succeed. But as she dusted the living room, mended the collar band, bathed Hugh, she was picturing herself and a young artisan Apollo, nameless and evasive, building a house in the Berkshires or in Virginia, exuberantly buying a chair with his first check, reading poetry together, and frequently being earnest over valuable statistics about labor, tumbling out of bed early for a Sunday walk, and chattering, where Kennicott would have yawned, over bread and butter by a lake. Hugh was in her pictures, and he adored the young artist, who made castles of chairs and rugs for him. Beyond these playtimes she saw the things I could do for Eric, and she admitted that Eric did partly make up the image of her altogether perfect artist. In panic she insisted on being attentive to Kennicott, when he wanted to be left alone to read the newspaper. 6. She needed new clothes. Kennicott had promised, We'll have a good trip down to the cities in the fall and take plenty of time for it, and you can get your new glad rags then. But as she examined her wardrobe, she flung her ancient black velvet frock on the floor and raged, They're disgraceful. Everything I have is falling to pieces. There was a new dressmaker and milliner, a Mrs. Swiftwaite. It was said that she was not altogether an elevating influence in the way she glanced at men that she would as soon take away a legally appropriate husband as not. That is, if there was any Mr. Swiftwaite, it certainly was strange that nobody seemed to know anything about him. But she had made for Rita Gould an organy frock and hat to match, universally admitted to be too cunning for words, 
and the matrons went cautiously, with darting eyes and excessive politeness, to the rooms which Mrs. Swiftwaite had taken in the old Luke Dawson house on Floral Avenue. With none of the spiritual preparation which normally precedes the buying of new clothes in Gopher Prairie, Carol marched into Mrs. Swiftwaite's and demanded, "'I want to see a hat, and possibly a blouse.' In the dingy old front parlor, which she had tried to make smart with a pier-glass, covers from fashion magazines, anemic French prints, Mrs. Swiftwaite moved smoothly among the dress-dummies and hat-rests, spoke smoothly as she took up a small black-and-red turban. I am sure the lady will find this extremely attractive." It's dreadfully tabby and small-towny, thought Carol, while she soothed, I don't believe it quite goes with me. It's the choicest thing I have, and I'm sure you'll find it suits you beautifully. It has a great deal of chic. Please, try it on," said Mrs. Swiftwaite, more smoothly than ever. Carol studied the woman. She was as imitative as a glass diamond. She was the more rustic in her effort to appear urban. She wore a severe high-collared blouse with a row of small black buttons, which was becoming to her low-breasted slim neatness, but her skirt was hysterically checkered, her cheeks were too highly rouged, her lips too sharply penciled. She was magnificently a specimen of the illiterate divorcee of forty made up to look thirty, clever, and alluring. While she was trying on the hat, Carol felt very condescending. She took it off, shook her head, explained with a kind smile for inferiors, I'm afraid it won't do, though it's unusually nice for so small a town as this. But it's really absolutely New Yorkish. Well, it—you see, I know my New York styles. I lived in New York for years, besides almost a year in Akron." "'You did?' Carol was polite and edged away, and went home unhappily. She was wondering whether her own airs were as laughable as Mrs. Swiftwaite's. She put on the eyeglasses which Kennicott had recently given her for reading, and looked over a grocery bill. She went hastily up to her room, to her mirror. She was in a mood of self-depreciation. Accurately or not, this was the picture she saw in the mirror. Neat, rimless eyeglasses. Black hair, clumsily tucked under a mauve straw hat, which would have suited a spinster. Cheeks clear, bloodless. Thin nose. Gentle mouth and chin. A modest, voile blouse with an edging of lace at the neck. A virginal sweetness and timorousness. No flare of gaiety, no suggestion of cities, music, quick laughter. I have become a small-town woman, absolute, typical, modest and moral and safe, protected from life, genteel, the village virus, the village virtuousness. My hair just scrambled together. What can Eric see in that wedded spinster there? He does like me because I'm the only woman who's decent to him. How long before he'll wake up to me? I've waked up to myself. Am I as old as—as old as I am? Not really old. Become careless. Let myself look tabby. I want to chuck every stitch I own. Black hair and pale cheeks. They'd go with a Spanish dancer's costume. Rose behind my ear, scarlet mantilla over one shoulder the other bare, 
She seized the rouge sponge, daubed her cheeks, scratched at her lips with a vermilion pencil until they stung, tore open her collar. She posed with her thin arms in the attitude of the fandango. She dropped them sharply. She shook her head. "'My heart doesn't dance,' she said. She flushed as she fastened her blouse. "'At least I'm much more graceful than Fern Mullins. Heavens! When I came here from the cities, girls imitated me. Now I'm trying to imitate a city girl.'" End of chapter 29《Chapter 30 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 30 1. Fern Mullins rushed into the house on a Saturday morning, early in September, and shrieked at Carol, School starts next Tuesday. I've got to have one more spree before I'm arrested. Let's get up a picnic down the lake for this afternoon. Won't you come, Mrs. Kennicott, and the doctor? Cy Bogart wants to go. He's a brat, but he's lively." "'I don't think the doctor can go,' sedately. "'He said something about having to make a country call this afternoon. But I'd love to.' "'That's dandy. Who can we get?' "'Mrs. Dyer might be chaperone. She's been so nice. And maybe Dave, if he could get away from the store. "'How about Eric Valborg? I think he's got lots more style than these town boys. You like him all right, don't you?" So the picnic of Carol, Fern, Eric, Cy Bogart, and the Dyers was not only moral, but inevitable. They drove to the Birch Grove on the south shore of Lake Minimashi. Dave Dyer was his most clownish self. He yelped, jigged, wore Carol's hat, dropped an ant down Fern's back, and when they went swimming, the women modestly changing in the car with the side curtains up, the men undressing behind the bushes, constantly repeating, "'Gee, hope we don't run into poison ivy!' Dave splashed water in them and dived to clutch his wife's ankle. He infected the others. Eric gave an imitation of the Greek dancers he had seen in vaudeville. And when they sat down to picnic supper spread on a lap-robe on the grass, Cy climbed a tree to throw acorns at them. But Carol could not frolic. She had made herself young, with parted hair, sailor blouse and large blue bow, white canvas shoes and a short linen skirt. Her mirror had asserted that she looked exactly as she had in college, that her throat was smooth, her collarbone not very noticeable. But she was under restraint. When they swam, she enjoyed the freshness of the water, but she was irritated by Cy's tricks, by Dave's excessive good spirits. She admired Eric's dance. He could never betray bad taste, as Cy did and Dave. She waited for him to come to her. He did not come. By his joyousness he had apparently endeared himself to the Dyers. Maud watched him and, after supper, cried to him, "'Come sit down beside me, bad boy!' Carol winced at his willingness to be a bad boy and come and sit at his enjoyment of a not very stimulating game in which Maud, Dave, and Cy snatched slices of cold tongue from one another's plates. Maud, it seemed, was slightly dizzy from the swim. She remarked publicly, "'Dr. Kennicott has helped me so much by putting me on a diet.' But it was to Eric alone that she gave the complete version of her peculiarity in being so sensitive, 
so easily hurt by the slightest cross word, that she simply had to have nice cheery friends. Eric was nice and cheery. Carol assured herself, What faults I may have, I certainly couldn't ever be jealous. I do like Maud, she's always so pleasant. But I wonder if she isn't just a bit fond of fishing for men's sympathy. Playing with Eric and her married, well. But she looks at him in that languishing, swoony, mid-Victorian way. Disgusting. Cy Bogart lay between the roots of a big birch, smoking his pipe and teasing Fern, assuring her that a week from now, when he was again a high school boy and she his teacher, he'd wink at her in class. Maud Dyer wanted Eric to come down to the beach to see the darling little minnies. Carol was left to Dave, who tried to entertain her with humorous accounts of Ella Stobody's fondness for chocolate peppermints. She watched Maud Dyer put her hand on Eric's shoulder to steady herself. Disgusting, she thought. Cy Bogart covered Fern's nervous hand with his red paw, and when she bounced with half-anger and shrieked, Let go, I tell you! he grinned and waved his pipe, a gangling twenty-year-old satyr. Disgusting! When Maud and Eric returned and the group shifted, Eric muttered at Carol, There's a boat on shore. Let's skip off and have a row. What will they think? she worried. She saw Maud Dyer peer at Eric with moist, possessive eyes. Yes, let's, she said. She cried to the party with a canonical amount of sprightliness. Goodbye, everybody. We'll wireless you from China. As the rhythmic oars plopped and creaked, as she floated on an unreality of delicate gray over which the sunset was poured out thin, the irritation of Cy and Maud slipped away. Eric smiled at her proudly. She considered him, coatless, in white thin shirt. She was conscious of his male differentness, of his flat masculine sides, his thin thighs, his easy rowing. They talked of the library, of the movies. He hummed, and she softly sang, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. A breeze shivered across the agate lake. The wrinkled water was like armor, damasoned and polished. The breeze flowed round the boat in a chill current. Carol drew the collar of her midi-blouse over her bare throat. "'Getting cold. Afraid we'll have to go back,' she said. "'Let's not go back to them yet. They'll be cutting up. Let's keep along the shore.' "'But you enjoy the cutting up. Maud and you had a beautiful time. Why, we just walked on the shore and talked about fishing.' She was relieved and apologetic to her friend Maud. "'Of course. I was joking.' I'll tell you. Let's land here and sit on the shore. That bunch of hazel brush will shelter us from the wind and watch the sunset. It's like melted lead. Just a short while. We don't want to go back and listen to them. No, but... She said nothing while he sped ashore. The keel clashed on the stones. He stood on the forward seat, holding out his hand. They were alone, in the ripple-lapping silence. She rose slowly, slowly stepped over the water in the bottom of the old boat. She took his hand confidently. Unspeaking, they sat on a bleached log, in a russet sunset which hinted of autumn. Linden leaves fluttered about them. "'I wish—are you cold now?' he whispered. "'A little.' She shivered, 
but it was not with cold. I wish we could curl up in the leaves there, covered all up, and lie looking out at the dark. I wish we could. As though it was comfortably understood that he did not mean to be taken seriously. Like what all the poets say, brown nymph and fawn. No, I can't be a nymph any more. Too old. Eric, am I old? Am I faded and small-towny? Why, you're the youngest. Your eyes are like a girl's. They're so... well, I mean, like you believed everything. Even if you do teach me, I feel a thousand years older than you, instead of maybe a year younger. Four or five years younger. Anyway, your eyes are so innocent and your cheeks so soft. Damn it! It makes me want to cry, somehow, you're so defenseless. And I want to protect you, and there's nothing to protect you against. Am I young? Am I? Honestly? Truly? She betrayed for a moment the childish, mock-imploring tone that comes into the voice of the most serious woman when an agreeable man treats her as a girl the childish tone and childish pursed-up lips and shy lift of the cheek. "'Yes, you are.' "'You're dear to believe it, Will, Eric.' "'Will you play with me, a lot?' "'Perhaps.' "'Would you really like to curl up in the leaves and watch the stars swing by overhead?' "'I think it's rather better to be sitting here.' He twined his fingers with hers. "'And Eric?' We must go back. Why? It's somewhat late to outline all the history of social custom. I know. We must. Are you glad we ran away, though? Yes. She was quiet, perfectly simple. But she rose. He circled her waist with a brusque arm. She did not resist. She did not care. He was neither a peasant tailor, a potential artist, a social complication, nor a peril. He was himself, and in him, in the personality flowing from him, she was unreasonably content. In his nearness she caught a new view of his head. The last light brought out the planes of his neck, his flat, ruddy cheeks, the side of his nose, the depression of his temples. Not as coy or uneasy lovers, but as companions they walked to the boat, and he lifted her up on the prow. She began to talk intently as he rowed. Eric, you've got to work. You ought to be a personage. You're robbed of your kingdom. Fight for it. Take one of these correspondence courses in drawing. They mayn't be any good in themselves, but they'll make you try to draw, and... As they reached the picnic ground she perceived that it was dark, that they had been gone for a long time. What will they say? she wondered. The others greeted them with the inevitable storm of humor and slight vexation. Where the deuce do you think you've been? You're a fine pair, you are. Eric and Carol looked self-conscious, failed in their effort to be witty. All the way home Carol was embarrassed. Once Cy winked at her. That Cy, the peeping Tom of the garage loft, should consider her a fellow sinner. She was furious and frightened and exultant by turns, and in all her moods certain that Kennicott would read her adventuring in her face. 
she came into the house awkwardly defiant. Her husband, half asleep under the lamp, greeted her. "'Well, well, have a nice time?' She could not answer. He looked at her. But his look did not sharpen. He began to wind his watch, yawning the old, "'Well, guess it's about time to turn in.' That was all. Yet she was not glad. She was almost disappointed. 2. Mrs. Bogart called next day. She had a hen-like, crumb-pecking, diligent appearance. Her smile was too innocent. The pecking started instantly. Sai says you had lots of fun at the picnic yesterday. Did you enjoy it?' "'Oh, yes. I raced Sai at swimming. He beat me badly. He's so strong, isn't he?' "'Poor boy! Just crazy to get into the war, too. But... This Eric Valborg was along, wasn't he?" Yes. I think he's an awfully handsome fellow, and they say he's smart. Do you like him? He seems very polite. Sy says you and him had a lovely boat ride. My, that must have been pleasant. Yes, except that I couldn't get Mr. Valborg to say a word. I wanted to ask him about the suit Mr. Hicks is making for my husband, but he insisted on singing. Still, it was restful, floating around on the water and singing, so happy and innocent. Don't you think it's a shame, Mrs. Bogart, that people in this town don't do more nice clean things like that, instead of all this horrible gossiping?" Yes, yes. Mrs. Bogart sounded vacant. Her bonnet was awry. She was incomparably dowdy. Carol stared at her, felt contemptuous ready at last to rebel against the trap, and as the rusty good wife fished again. "'Plannin' some more picnics?' she flung out. "'I haven't the slightest idea. Oh, is that Hugh crying? I must run up to him.' But upstairs she remembered that Mrs. Bogart had seen her walking with Eric from the railroad track into town, and she was chilly with disquietude. At the Jolly Seventeen, two days after, she was effusive to Maud Dyer, to Juanita Haydock. She fancied that every one was watching her, but she could not be sure, and in rare strong moments she did not care. She could rebel against the town's prying now that she had something, however indistinct, for which to rebel. In a passionate escape there must be not only a place from which to flee, but a place to which to flee. She had known that she would gladly leave Gopher Prairie leave Main Street and all that it signified, but she had had no destination. She had one now. That destination was not Eric Valborg and the love of Eric. She continued to assure herself that she wasn't in love with him but merely fond of him and interested in his success. Yet in him she had discovered both her need of youth and the fact that youth would welcome her. It was not Eric to whom she must escape but universal and joyous youth, in classrooms, in studios, in offices, in meetings to protest against things in general, but universal and joyous youth rather resembled Eric. All week she thought of things she wished to say to him, high, improving things. She began to admit that she was lonely without him. Then she was afraid. It was at the Baptist church supper, a week after the picnic, that she saw him again. 
She had gone with Kennicott and Aunt Bessie to the supper, which was spread on oilcloth-covered and trestle-supported tables in the church basement. Eric was helping Myrtle Cass to fill coffee cups for the waitresses. The congregation had doffed their piety. Children tumbled under the tables, and Deacon Pearson greeted the women with a rolling, "'Where's Brother Jones, sister? Where's Brother Jones? Not going to be with us tonight? Well, you tell Sister Perry to hand you a plate and make him give you enough oyster pie.' Eric shared in the cheerfulness. He laughed with Myrtle, jogged her elbow when she was filling cups, made deep mock bows to the waitresses as they came up for coffee. Myrtle was enchanted by his humor. From the other end of the room, a matron among matrons, Carol observed Myrtle and hated her, and caught herself at it. To be jealous of a wooden-faced village girl! But she kept it up. She detested Eric, gloated over his gaucheries, his breaks, she called them. When he was too expressive, too much like a Russian dancer, in saluting Deacon Pearson, Carol had the ecstasy of pain in seeing the deacon sneer. When, trying to talk to three girls at once, he dropped a cup and effeminately wailed, "'Oh, dear!' she sympathized with, and ached over, the insulting secret glances of the girls. From meanly hating him she rose to compassion as she saw that his eyes begged every one to like him. She perceived how inaccurate her judgments could be. At the picnic she had fancied that Maud Dyer looked upon Eric too sentimentally, and she had snarled, I hate these married women who cheapen themselves and feed on boys. But at the supper Maud was one of the waitresses. She bustled with platters of cake, she was pleasant to old women. And to Eric she gave no attention at all. Indeed, when she had her own supper she joined the Kennicotts, and how ludicrous it was to suppose that Maud was a gourmet of emotions Carol saw in the fact that she talked not to one of the town beaux, but to the safe Kennicott himself. When Carol glanced at Eric again she discovered that Mrs. Bogart had an eye on her. It was a shock to know that at last there was something which could make her afraid of Mrs. Bogart spying. "'What am I doing? Am I in love with Eric? Unfaithful? I? I want youth, but I don't want him. I mean, I don't want youth enough to break up my life. I must get out of this, quick." She said to Kennicott on their way home, "'Will, I want to run away for a few days. Wouldn't you like to skip down to Chicago?' "'Still pretty hot there. No fun in a big city till winter. What do you want to go for?' "'People. To occupy my mind. I want stimulus.' "'Stimulus?' He spoke good-naturedly. Who's been feeding you meat? You got that stimulus out of one of these fool stories about wives that don't know when they're well off. Stimulus. Seriously, though, to cut out the jollying, I can't get away. Then why don't I run off by myself? Why, tisn't the money, you understand. But what about Hugh? Leave him with Aunt Bessie. It would be just for a few days. I don't much like this business of leaving kids around bad for him. So you don't think—I'll tell you. I think we better stay put till after the war. Then we'll have a dandy long trip. No, I don't think you'd better plan much about going away now." So she was thrown at Eric. 3. 
She awoke at ebb time, at three of the morning, woke sharply and fully, and sharply and coldly as her father pronouncing sentence on a cruel swindler she gave judgment. A pitiful and tawdry love affair. No splendor, no defiance. A self-deceived little woman whispering in corners with a pretentious little man. No, he is not. He is fine, aspiring. It's not his fault. His eyes are sweet when he looks at me. Sweet, so sweet. She pitied herself that her romance should be pitiful. She sighed that in this colorless hour, to this austere self, it should seem tawdry. Then, in a very great desire of rebellion and unleashing of all her hatreds, the pettier and more tawdry it is, the more blame to Main Street. It shows how much I've been longing to escape. Any way out. Any humility so long as I can flee. Main Street has done this to me. I came here eager for nobilities, ready for work, and now... any way out. I came trusting them. They beat me with the rods of dullness. They don't know, they don't understand how agonizing their complacent dullness is, like ants in August sun on a wound. Tawdry, pitiful. Carol, the clean girl that used to walk so fast, sneaking and tittering in dark corners, being sentimental and jealous at church suppers. At breakfast-time her agonies were night-blurred, and persisted only as a nervous irresolution. 4. Few of the aristocrats of the Jolly Seventeen attended the humble folk-meets of the Baptist and Methodist church suppers, where the Willis Woodfords, the Dillons, the Champ Perrys, Oldison the Butcher, Brad Bemis the Tinsmith, and Deacon Pearson found release from loneliness. But all of the smart set went to the lawn festivals of the Episcopal Church, and were reprovingly polite to outsiders. The Harry Haydocks gave the last lawn festival of the season, a splendor of Japanese lanterns and card tables and chicken patties and Neapolitan ice cream. Eric was no longer entirely an outsider. He was eating his ice cream with a group of the people most solidly in, the Dyers, Myrtle Cass, Guy Pollock, the Jackson elders. The Haydocks themselves kept aloof, but the others tolerated him. He would never, Carol fancied, be one of the town pillars, because he was not orthodox in hunting and motoring and poker. But he was winning approbation by his liveliness, his gaiety, the qualities least important in him. When the group summoned Carol, she made several very well-taken points in regard to the weather. Myrtle cried to Eric, "'Come on, we don't belong with these old folks. I want to make you acquainted with the jolliest girl. She comes from Wakeman. She's staying with Mary Howland.' Carol saw him being profuse to the guests from Wakeman. She saw him confidentially strolling with Myrtle. She burst out to Mrs. Westlake, "'Valborg and Myrtle seem to have quite a crush on each other.' Mrs. Wesley glanced at her curiously before she mumbled, "'Yes, don't they?' "'I'm mad to talk this way,' Carol worried. She had regained a feeling of social virtue by telling Juanita Haydock how darling her lawn looked with the Japanese lanterns, when she saw that Eric was stalking her, though he was merely ambling about with his hands in his pockets, though he did not peep at her, she knew that he was calling her. She sidled away from Juanita. Eric hastened to her. 
She nodded coolly. She was proud of her coolness. "'Carol, I've got a wonderful chance. Don't know but what some ways it might be better than going east to take art. Myrtle Cass says, I dropped in to say howdy to Myrtle last evening and had quite a long talk with her father, and he said he was hunting for a fellow to go to work in the flour mill and learn the whole business, and maybe become general manager. I know something about wheat from my farming, and I worked a couple of months in the flour mill at Curlew when I got sick of tailoring. What do you think? You said any work was artistic if it was done by an artist, and flour is so important. What do you think? Wait. Wait. This sensitive boy would be very skillfully stamped into conformity by Lyman Cass and his sallow daughter. But did she detest the plan for this reason? I must be honest. I mustn't tamper with his future to please my vanity. But she had no sure vision. She turned on him. How can I decide? It's up to you. Do you want to become a person like Lyme Cass, or do you want to become a person like—yes, like me? Wait. Don't be flattering. Be honest. This is important. I know. I am a person like you now. I mean, I want to rebel. Yes, we're alike. Gravely. Only, I'm not sure I can put through my schemes. I really can't draw much. I guess I have pretty fair taste in fabrics, but since I've known you, I don't like to think about fussing with dress designing. But as a miller, I'd have the means. Books, piano, travel. I'm going to be frank and beastly. Don't you realize that it isn't just because her papa needs a bright young man in the mill that Myrtle is amiable to you? Can't you understand what she'll do to you when she has you, when she sends you to church and makes you become respectable? He glared at her. I don't know. I suppose so. You are thoroughly unstable. What if I am? Most fish out of water are. Don't talk like Mrs. Bogart. How can I be anything but unstable? Wandering from farm to tailor shop to books, no training, nothing but trying to make books talk to me? Probably I'll fail. Oh, I know it. Probably I'm uneven. But I'm not unstable in thinking about this job in the mill and Myrtle. I know what I want. I want you. Please, please, oh, please. I do. I'm not a schoolboy any more. I want you. If I take Myrtle, it's to forget you. Please, please, it's you that are unstable. You talk at things and play at things, but you're scared. Would I mind it if you and I went off to poverty and I had to dig ditches? I would not. But you would. I think you would come to like me, but you won't admit it. I wouldn't have had to say this, but when you sneer at Myrtle in the mill, if I'm not to have good, sensible things like those, do you think I'll be content with trying to become a damn dressmaker after you? Are you fair? Are you? No, I suppose not. Do you like me? Do you? Yes, no, please, I can't talk any more. Not here. Mrs. Haydock is looking at us. No, nor anywhere. Oh, Eric, I am fond of you but I'm afraid. What of? Of them, of my rulers, Gopher Prairie. 
My dear boy, we are talking very foolishly. I am a normal wife and a good mother, and you are—oh, a college freshman. You do like me. I'm going to make you love me." She looked at him once, recklessly, and walked away with a serene gait that was a disordered flight. Kennicott grumbled on their way home. You and this Valborg fellow seem quite chummy. Oh, we are. He's interested in Myrtle Cass, and I was telling him how nice she is. In her room she marveled, I have become a liar. I'm snarled with lies and foggy analyses and desires, I who was clear and sure. She hurried into Kennicott's room, sat on the edge of his bed. He flapped a drowsy welcoming hand at her from the expanse of quilt and dented pillows. Will, I really think I ought to trot off to St. Paul or Chicago or some place. I thought we settled all that few nights ago. Wait till we can have a real trip." He shook himself out of his drowsiness. "'You might give me a good-night kiss.' She did, dutifully. He held her lips against his for an intolerable time. "'Don't you like the old man any more?' he coaxed. He sat up and shyly fitted his palm about the slimness of her waist. "'Of course. I like you very much indeed.' Even to herself it sounded flat. She longed to be able to throw into her voice the facile passion of a light woman. She patted his cheek. He sighed. I'm sorry you're so tired. Seems like—but of course you aren't very strong. Yes. Then you don't think—you're quite sure I ought to stay here in town? I told you so. I certainly do. She crept back to her room, a small, timorous figure in white. I can't face Will down, demand the right. He'd be obstinate, and I can't even go off and earn my living again, out of the habit of it. He's driving me. I'm afraid of what he's driving me to, afraid. That man in there, snoring in stale air, my husband. Could any ceremony make him my husband? No, I don't want to hurt him. I want to love him. I can't when I'm thinking of Eric. Am I too honest, a funny, topsy-turvy honesty, the faithfulness of the unfaith? I wish I had a more compartmental mind, like men. I'm too monogamous, toward Eric, my child Eric, who needs me. Is an illicit affair like a gambling debt? demand stricter honor than the legitimate debt of matrimony because it's not legally enforced? That's nonsense. I don't care in the least for Eric. Not for any man. I want to be let alone, in a woman world, a world without Main Street, or politicians, or businessmen, or men with that sudden beastly hungry look, that glistening unfrank expression that wives know. If Eric were here, if he would just sit quiet and kind and talk, I could be still, I could go to sleep. I am so tired. If I could sleep. End of chapter 30
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 31 Their night came unheralded. Kennicott was on a country call. It was cool, but Carol huddled on the porch, rocking, meditating, rocking. The house was lonely and repellent, and though she sighed, I ought to go in and read, so many things to read, ought to go in, she remained. Suddenly Eric was coming, turning in, swinging open the screen door, touching her hand. Eric! Saw your husband driving out of town. Couldn't stand it. Well, you mustn't stay more than five minutes. Couldn't stand not seeing you. Every day, towards evening, felt I had to see you. Picture you so clear. I've been good, though, staying away, haven't I? And you must go on being good. Why must I? We better not stay here on the porch. The Howlands across the street are such window peepers, and Mrs. Bogart. She did not look at him, but she could divine his tremulousness as he stumbled indoors. A moment ago the night had been coldly empty. Now it was incalculable, hot, treacherous. But it is women who are the calm realists once they discard the fetishes of the premarital hunt. Carol was serene as she murmured, Hungry? I have some little honey-colored cakes. You may have two, and then you must skip home. Take me up and let me see Hugh asleep. I don't believe. Just a glimpse. Well... She doubtfully led the way to the hall-room nursery. Their heads close, Eric's curls pleasant as they touched her cheek, they looked in at the baby. Hugh was pink with slumber. He had burrowed into his pillow with such energy that it was almost smothering him. Beside it was a celluloid rhinoceros, tied in his hand a torn picture of old King Cole. "'Shh!' said Carol, quite automatically. She tiptoed in to pat the pillow. As she returned to Eric, she had a friendly sense of his waiting for her. They smiled at each other. She did not think of Kennicott, the baby's father. What she did think was that someone rather like Eric, an older and surer Eric, ought to be Hugh's father. The three of them would play, incredible, imaginative games. Carol, you've told me about your own room. Let me peep in at it. But you mustn't stay, not a second. We must go downstairs. Yes. Will you be good? Reasonably. He was pale, large-eyed, serious. You've got to be more than reasonably good. She felt sensible and superior. She was energetic about pushing open the door. Kennicott had always seemed out of place there, but Eric surprisingly harmonized with the spirit of the room as he stroked the books glanced at the prince. He held out his hands. He came toward her. She was weak, betrayed to a warm softness. Her head was tilted back. Her eyes were closed. Her thoughts were formless but many-colored. She felt his kiss, diffident and reverent, on her eyelid. Then she knew that it was impossible. She shook herself. She sprang from him. Please, she said sharply. He looked at her unyielding. "'I am fond of you,' she said. "'Don't spoil everything. Be my friend.' "'How many thousands and millions of women must have said that! And now you! And it doesn't spoil everything. 
It glorifies everything. Dear, I do think there's a tiny streak of fairy in you, whatever you do with it. Perhaps I'd have loved that once. But I won't. It's too late. But I'll keep a fondness for you. Impersonal. I will be impersonal. It needn't be just a thin, talky fondness. You do need me, don't you? Only you and my son need me. I've wanted so to be wanted. Once I wanted love to be given to me. Now I'll be content if I can give. Almost content. We women, we like to do things for men. Poor men. We swoop on you when you're defenseless and fuss over you and insist on reforming you. But it's so pitifully deep in us. You'll be the one thing in which I haven't failed. Do something definite, even if it's just selling cottons. Sell beautiful cottons, caravans from China. Carol, stop. You do love me. I do not. It's just... Can't you understand? Everything crushes in on me so, all the gaping dull people, and I look for a way out. Please go. I can't stand any more. Please." He was gone, and she was not relieved by the quiet of the house. She was empty, and the house was empty, and she needed him. She wanted to go on talking, to get this threshed out, to build a sane friendship. She wavered down to the living-room, looked out of the bay window. He was not to be seen. But Mrs. Westlake was. She was walking past, and in the light from the corner arc-lamp she quickly inspected the porch, the windows. Carol dropped the curtain, stood with movement and reflection paralyzed. Automatically, without reasoning, she mumbled, "'I will see him again soon and make him understand we must be friends. But the house is so empty. It echoes so.'" 2. Kennicott had seemed nervous and absent-minded through that supper hour two evenings after. He prowled about the living-room, then growled, "'What the dickens have you been saying to Ma Westlake?' Carol's book rattled. "'What do you mean?' "'I told you that Westlake and his wife were jealous of us, and here you've been chumming up to them and, from what Dave tells me, Ma Westlake has been going around town saying you told her that you hate Aunt Bessie and that you fixed up your own room because I snore, and you said Bjornstam was too good for B, and then, just recent, that you were sore on the town because we don't all go down on our knees and beg for this Valborg fellow to come take supper with us. God only knows what else she says you said. It's not true, any of it. I did like Mrs. Westlake, and I've called on her, and apparently she's gone and twisted everything I've said. Sure, of course she would. Didn't I tell you she would? She's an old cat, like her pussyfooting, hand-holding husband. Lord, if I was sick, I'd rather have a faith-healer than Westlake, and she's another slice off the same bacon. What I can't understand, though," she waited, taut, is whatever possessed you to let her pump you, bright a girl as you are? I don't care what you told her. We all get peeved sometimes and want to blow off steam that's natural. But if you wanted to keep it dark, why didn't you advertise it in the Dauntless, or get a megaphone and stand on top of the hotel and holler, or do anything besides spill it to her? I know, you told me. But she was so motherly. And I didn't have any woman. 
Vita's become so married and proprietary. Well, next time you'll have better sense." He patted her head, flumped down behind his newspaper, said nothing more. Enemies leered through the windows, stole on her from the hall. She had no one save Eric. This kind good man Kennicott, he was an elder brother. It was Eric, her fellow outcast, to whom she wanted to run for sanctuary. Through her storm she was to the eye, sitting quietly with her fingers between the pages of a baby-blue book on home-dressing. But her dismay at Mrs. Westlake's treachery had risen to active dread. What had the woman said of her and Eric? What did she know? What had she seen? Who else would join in the baying hunt? Who else had seen her with Eric? What had she to fear from the Dyers, Cy Bogart, Juanita, Aunt Bessie? What precisely had she answered to Mrs. Bogart's questioning? All next day she was too restless to stay home, yet as she walked the streets on fictitious errands she was afraid of every person she met. She waited for them to speak, waited with foreboding. She repeated, I mustn't ever see Eric again. But the words did not register. She had no ecstatic indulgence in the sense of guilt which is, to the women of Main Street, the surest escape from blank tediousness. At five, crumpled in a chair in the living-room, she started at the sound of the bell. Someone opened the door. She waited, uneasy. Vida Sherwin charged into the room. "'Here's the one person I can trust,' Carol rejoiced. Vida was serious but affectionate. She bustled at Carol with, "'Oh, there you are, dearie. So glad to find you in. Sit down. Want to talk to you.' Carol sat, obedient. Vida fussily tugged over a large chair and launched out. "'I've been hearing vague rumors you were interested in this Eric Valborg. I knew you couldn't be guilty, and I'm surer than ever of it now. Here we are, as blooming as a daisy. How does a respectable matron look when she feels guilty?" Carol sounded resentful. Why, oh, it would show. Besides, I know that you, of all people, are the one that can appreciate Dr. Will. What have you been hearing? Nothing, really. I just heard Mrs. Bogart say she'd seen you and Valborg walking together a lot." Vida's chirping slackened. She looked at her nails. But I suspect you do like Valborg. Oh, I don't mean in any wrong way. But you're young. You don't know what an innocent liking might drift into. You always pretend to be so sophisticated and all, but you're a baby. Just because you are so innocent, you don't know what evil thoughts may lurk in that fellow's brain." "'You don't suppose Valborg could actually think about making love to me?' Her rather cheap sport ended abruptly as Vida cried with contorted face, "'What do you know about the thoughts in hearts? You just play at reforming the world. You don't know what it means to suffer.' "'There are two insults which no human being will endure the assertion that he hasn't a sense of humor, and the doubly impertinent assertion that he has never known trouble." Carol said furiously. "'You think I don't suffer? You think I've always had an easy—no, you don't. I'm going to tell you something I've never told a living soul, not even Ray.' The dam of repressed imagination which Vida had builded for years, 
which now, with Raimi off at the wars, she was building again, gave way. I was... I liked Will terribly well. One time at a party—oh, before he met you, of course—but we held hands, and we were so happy. But I didn't feel I was really suited to him. I let him go. Please don't think I still love him. I see now that Ray was predestined to be my mate. But because I liked him, I know how sincere and pure and noble Will is, and his thoughts never straying from the path of rectitude, and if I gave him up to you, at least you've got to appreciate him. We danced together and laughed so, and I gave him up, but this is my affair. I'm not intruding. I see the whole thing as he does, because of all I've told you. Maybe it's shameless to bear my heart this way, but I do it for him, for him and you." Carol understood that Vida believed herself to have recited minutely and brazenly a story of intimate love, understood that, in alarm, she was trying to cover her shame as she struggled on. Liked him in the most honorable way. Simply can't help it if I still see things through his eyes. If I gave him up, I certainly am not beyond my rights in demanding that you take care to avoid even the appearance of evil, and— She was weeping, an insignificant, flushed, ungracefully weeping woman. Carol could not endure it. She ran to Vida, kissed her forehead, comforted her with a murmur of dove-like sounds, sought to reassure her with worn and hastily assembled gifts of words. Oh, I appreciate it so much, and you are so fine and splendid, and let me assure you there isn't a thing to what you've heard, and oh, indeed, I do know how sincere Will is, and, as you say, so, so sincere. Vida believed that she had explained many deep and devious matters. She came out of her hysteria like a sparrow shaking off raindrops. She sat up and took advantage of her victory. I don't want to rub it in, but you can see for yourself now this is all a result of your being so discontented and not appreciating the dear good people here. And another thing, people like you and me, who want to reform things, have to be particularly careful about appearances. Think how much better you can criticize conventional customs if you yourself live up to them, scrupulously. Then people can't say you're attacking them to excuse your own infractions. To Carol was given a sudden, great philosophical understanding, an explanation of half the cautious reforms in history. Yes, I've heard that plea. It's a good one. It sets revolts aside to cool. It keeps strays in the flock. To word it differently, you must live up to the popular code if you believe in it. But if you don't believe in it, then you must live up to it. I don't think so at all, said Vida vaguely. She began to look hurt, and Carol let her be oracular. 3. Vida had done her a service, had made all agonizing seem so fatuous that she ceased writhing and saw that her whole problem was simple as mutton. She was interested in Eric's aspiration. Interest gave her a hesitating fondness for him, and the future would take care of the event. But at night, thinking in bed, she protested. I'm not a falsely accused innocent, though. If it were someone more resolute than Eric, 
a fighter, an artist with bearded surly lips. They're only in books. Is that the real tragedy? That I never shall know tragedy? Never find anything but blustery complications that turn out to be a farce? No one big enough or pitiful enough to sacrifice for. Tragedy in neat blouses. The eternal flame all nice and safe in a kerosene stove. Neither heroic faith nor heroic guilt. Peeping at love from behind lace curtains on Main Street. Aunt Bessie crept in next day, tried to pump her, tried to prime the pump by again hinting that Kennicott might have his own affairs. Carol snapped. Whatever I may do, I'll have you to understand that Will is only too safe. She wished afterward that she had not been so lofty. How much would Aunt Bessie make of whatever I may do? When Kennicott came home he poked at things and hemmed and brought out, Saw Auntie this afternoon. She said you weren't very polite to her. Carol laughed. He looked at her in a puzzled way and fled to his newspaper. 4. She lay sleepless. She alternately considered ways of leaving Kennicott and remembered his virtues, pitied his bewilderment in the face of the subtle corroding sicknesses which he could not dose nor cut out. Didn't he perhaps need her more than did the book-solaced Eric? Suppose Will were to die suddenly, suppose she never again saw him at breakfast, silent but amiable, listening to her chatter. Suppose he never again played elephant for Hugh. Suppose a country call, a slippery road, his motor skidding, the edge of the road crumbling, the car turning turtle, Will pinned beneath, suffering, brought home maimed, looking at her with spaniel eyes. Or waiting for her, calling for her, while she was in Chicago, knowing nothing of it. Suppose he were sued by some vicious shrieking woman for malpractice. He tried to get witnesses. Westlake spread lies. His friends doubted him. His self-confidence was so broken that it was horrible to see the indecision of the decisive man. He was convicted, handcuffed, taken on a train. She ran to his room. At her nervous push the door swung sharply in, struck a chair. He awoke, gasped, then in a steady voice, "'What is it, dear? Anything wrong?' She darted to him fumbled for the familiar harsh bristly cheek. How well she knew it, every seam and hardness of bone and roll of fat. Yet when he sighed, this is a nice visit, and dropped his hand on her thin covered shoulder, she said, too cheerily, I thought I heard you moaning. So silly of me. Good night, dear. 5. She did not see Eric for a fortnight save once at church and once when she went to the tailor-shop to talk over the plans, contingencies, and strategy of Kennicott's annual campaign for getting a new suit. Nat Hicks was there, and he was not so deferential as he had been. With unnecessary jauntiness he chuckled, "'Some nice flannels, them samples, eh?' Needlessly he touched her arm to call attention to the fashion plates, and humorously he glanced from her to Eric. At home, she wondered if the little beast might not be suggesting himself as a rival to Eric, but that abysmal bedragglement she would not consider. She saw Juanita Haydock slowly walking past the house, as Mrs. Westlake had once walked past.
she met Mrs. Westlake in Uncle Whittier's store, and before that alert stare forgot her determination to be rude and was shakily cordial. She was sure that all the men on the street, even Guy Pollock and Sam Clark, leered at her in an interested, hopeful way, as though she were a notorious divorcee. She felt as insecure as a shadowed criminal. She wished to see Eric, and wished that she had never seen him. She fancied that Kennicott was the only person in town who did not know all, know incomparably more than there was to know, about herself and Eric. She crouched in her chair as she imagined men talking of her, thick-voiced, obscene, in barbershops and the tobacco-stinking pool-parlor. Through early autumn Fern Mullins was the only person who broke the suspense. The frivolous teacher had come to accept Carol as of her own youth, and though school had begun she rushed in daily to suggest dances, Welsh rabbit parties. Fern begged her to go as chaperone to a barn dance in the country, on a Saturday evening. Carol could not go. The next day the storm crashed. End of chapter 31Chapter Thirty Two of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Two One Carol was on the back porch, tightening a bolt on the baby's go cart this Sunday afternoon. Through an open window of the Bogart house, she heard a screeching, heard Mrs. Bogart's haggish voice. Did too, and there's no use in your denying it, no, you don't. You march yourself right straight out of this house. Never in my life heard of such—never had nobody talk to me like—walk in the ways of sin and nastiness. Leave your clothes here, and heaven knows that's more than you deserve. Any of your lip, and I'll call the policeman." The voice of the other interlocutor Carol did not catch, nor, though Mrs. Bogart was proclaiming that he was her confidant and present assistant, did she catch the voice of Mrs. Bogart's God. Another row was sigh, Carol inferred. She trundled the go-cart down the back steps and tentatively wheeled it across the yard, proud of her repairs. She heard steps on the sidewalk. She saw not Cy Bogart but Fern Mullins, carrying a suitcase, hurrying up the street with her head low. The widow, standing on the porch with buttery arms akimbo, yammered after the fleeing girl, "'And don't you dare show your face on this block again!' You can send the drayman for your trunk. My house has been contaminated long enough. Why the Lord should afflict me!" Fern was gone. The righteous widow glared, banged into the house, came out poking at her bonnet, marched away. By this time Carol was staring in a manner not visibly to be distinguished from the window-peeping of the rest of Gopher Prairie. She saw Mrs. Bogart enter the Howland house, then the Casses. Not till supper-time did she reach the Kennicotts. The doctor answered her ring and greeted her. "'Well, well, how's the good neighbor?' The good neighbor charged into the living-room, waving the most unctuous of black kid gloves, and delightedly sputtering, "'You may well ask how I am. I really do wonder how I could go through the awful scenes of this day, and the impudence I took from that woman's tongue that ought to be cut out. Whoa, whoa, hold up!' roared Kennicott. Who's the hussy, Sister Bogart? Sit down and take it cool and tell us about it. I can't sit down. I must hurry home. 
but I couldn't devote myself to my own selfish cares till I'd warned you, and heaven knows I don't expect any thanks for trying to warn the town against her. There's always so much evil in the world that folks simply won't see or appreciate your trying to safeguard them. And forcing herself in here to get in with you and Carrie, many's the time I've seen her doing it, and, thank heaven, she was found out in time before she could do any more harm. It simply breaks my heart and prostrates me to think what she may have done already, even if some of us that understand and know about things. Woo up! Who are you talking about? She's talking about Fern Mullins, Carol put in, not pleasantly. Huh? Kennicott was incredulous. I certainly am, flourished Mrs. Bogart, and good and thankful you may be that I found her out in time before she could get you into something, Carol, because even if you are my neighbor and Will's wife and a cultured lady, let me tell you right now, Carol Kennicott, that you ain't always as respectful to, you ain't as reverent, you don't stick by the good old ways like they was laid down for us by God in the Bible, and while of course there ain't a bit of harm in having a good laugh, and I know there ain't any real wickedness in you, yet, just the same, you don't fear God and hate the transgressors of His commandments like you ought to. And you may be thankful I found out this serpent I nourished in my bosom. And, oh yes, oh yes indeed! My lady must have two eggs every morning for breakfast, and eggs sixty cents a dozen, and once satisfied with one, like most folks. What did she care how much they cost, or if a person could make hardly nothing on her board and room? In fact, I just took her in out of charity and I might have known from the kind of stockings and clothes that she sneaked into my house in her trunk." Before they got her story she had five more minutes of obscene wallowing. The gutter comedy turned into high tragedy, with nemesis in black kid gloves. The actual story was simple, depressing, and unimportant. As to details Mrs. Bogart was indefinite, and angry that she should be questioned. Fern Mullins and Sy had, the evening before, driven alone to a barn dance in the country. Carol brought out the admission that Fern had tried to get a chaperone. At the dance Sy had kissed Fern, she confessed that. Sy had obtained a pint of whiskey. He said that he didn't remember where he had got it. Mrs. Bogart implied that Fern had given it to him. Fern herself insisted that he had stolen it from a farmer's overcoat, which, Mrs. Bogart raged, was obviously a lie. He had become soggily drunk. Fern had driven him home, deposited him, retching and wobbling, on the Bogart porch. Never before had her boy been drunk, shrieked Mrs. Bogart. When Kennicott grunted, she owned, Well, maybe once or twice I've smelled liquor on his breath. She also, with an air of being only too scrupulously exact, granted that sometimes he did not come home till morning. But he couldn't ever have been drunk for he always had the best excuses. The other boys had tempted him to go down the lake spearing pickerel by torchlight, or he had been out in a machine that ran out of gas. Anyway, never before had her boy fallen into the hands of a designing woman. "'What do you suppose Miss Mullins could design to do with him?' insisted Carol. Mrs. Bogart was puzzled, gave it up, went on. This morning, when she had faced both of them, Sy had manfully confessed that all of the blame was on Fern, because the teacher, his own teacher, had dared him to take a drink. Fern had tried to deny it. 
Then, gabbled Mrs. Bogart, then that woman had the impudence to say to me, What purpose could I have in wanting the filthy pup to get drunk? That's just what she called him, pup. I'll have no such nasty language in my house, I says, and you pretending and pulling the wool over people's eyes and making them think you're educated and fit to be a teacher and look out for young people's morals. You're worse than any streetwalker, I says. I'd let her have it good. I wa'n't going to flinch from my bounden duty and let her think that decent folks had to stand for her vile talk. Purpose, I says. Purpose. I'll tell you what purpose you had. Ain't I seen you making up to everything in pants that waste time and pay attention to your impertinence? Ain't I seen you showing off your legs with them short skirts of yours, trying to make out like you were so girlish and la-di-da running along the street? Carol was very sick at this version of Fern's eager youth, but she was sicker as Mrs. Bogart hinted that no one could tell what had happened between Fern and Sy before the drive home. Without exactly describing the scene, by her power of lustful imagination, the woman suggested dark country places apart from the lanterns and rude fiddling and banging dance-steps in the barn, then madness and harsh hateful conquest. Carol was too sick to interrupt. It was Kennicott who cried, "'Oh, for God's sake, quit it! You haven't any idea what happened. You haven't given us a single proof yet that Fern is anything but a rattle-brain youngster.' "'I haven't, eh? Well, what do you say to this?' I came straight out and I says to her, Did you or did you not taste the whiskey Sy had? And she says, I think I did take one sip. Sy made me, she said. She owned up to that much, so you can imagine. Does that prove her a prostitute? asked Carol. Carrie, don't you never use a word like that again, wailed the outraged Puritan. Well, does it prove her to be a bad woman that she took a taste of whiskey? I've done it myself. That's different. Not that I approve your doing it. What do the scriptures tell us? Strong drink is a mocker. But that's entirely different from a teacher drinking with one of her own pupils. Yes, it does sound bad. Vern was silly, undoubtedly. But as a matter of fact, she's only a year or two older than Sy, and probably a good many years younger in experience of vice. That's not true. She is plenty old enough to corrupt him. The job of corrupting Sy was done by your sinless town five years ago. Mrs. Bogart did not rage in return. Suddenly she was hopeless. Her head drooped. She patted her black kid gloves, picked at a thread of her faded brown skirt, and sighed. He's a good boy, and awfully affectionate if you treat him right. Some thinks he's terrible wild, but that's because he's young and he's so brave and truthful. Why, he was one of the first in town that wanted to enlist for the war, and I had to speak real sharp to him to keep him from running away. I didn't want him to get into no bad influences round these camps. And then—Mrs. Bogart rose from her pitifulness, recovered her pace—then I go and bring into my own house a woman that's worse, when all's said and done, than any bad woman he could have met. You say this Mullins woman is too young and inexperienced to corrupt Sy. Well, then, she's too young and inexperienced to teach him, too, one or t'other. You can't have your cake and eat it. So it don't make no difference which reason they fire her for, and that's practically almost what I said to the school board. Have you been telling this story to the members of the school board? I certainly have, every one of them. 
and their wives I says to them, "'Tain't my affair to decide what you should or should not do with your teachers,' I says, and I ain't presuming to dictate in any way, shape, manner, or form. I just want to know, I says, whether you're going to go on record as keeping here in our schools among a lot of innocent boys and girls, a woman that drinks, smokes, curses, uses bad language, and does such dreadful things as I wouldn't lay tongue to, but you know what I mean, I says. And, if so, I'll just see to it that the town learns about it. And that's what I told Professor Mott, too, being superintendent. And he's a righteous man, not going autoing on the Sabbath like the school board members. And the professor as much as admitted he was suspicious of the Mullins woman himself. 2. Kennicott was less shocked and much less frightened than Carol, and more articulate in his description of Mrs. Bogart when she had gone. Maud Dyer telephoned to Carol, and after a rather improbable question about cooking lima beans with bacon, demanded, "'Have you heard the scandal about Miss Mullins and Cy Bogart?' "'I'm sure it's a lie.' "'Oh, probably is.' Maud's manner indicated that the falsity of the story was an insignificant flaw in its general delightfulness. Carol crept to her room, sat with hands curled tight together as she listened to a plague of voices. She could hear the town yelping with it, every soul of them, gleeful at new details, panting to win importance by having details of their own to add. How well they would make up for what they had been afraid to do by imagining it in another! They who had not been entirely afraid, but merely careful and sneaky, all the barbershop roues and millinery parlor mondaines, how archly they were giggling! This second she could hear them at it. With what self-commendation they were cackling their suavest wit! You can't tell me she ain't a gay bird! I'm wise! And not one man in town to carry out their pioneer tradition of superb and contemptuous cursing not one to verify the myth that their rough chivalry and rugged virtues were more generous than the petty scandal-picking of older lands, not one dramatic frontiersman to thunder with fantastic and fictional oaths, "'What are you hitting at? What are you snickering at? What facts have you? What are these unheard-of sins you condemn so much, and like so well?' No one to say it. Not Kennicott, nor Guy Pollock, nor Champ Perry. Eric possibly, he would sputter uneasy protest. She suddenly wondered what subterranean connection her interest in Eric had with this affair. Wasn't it because they had been prevented by her caste from bounding on her own trail that they were howling at Fern? 3. Before supper she found, by half a dozen telephone calls, that Fern had fled to the Minimashi house. She hastened there, trying not to be self-conscious about the people who looked at her on the street. The clerk said indifferently that he guessed Miss Mullins was up in room 37, and left Carol to find the way. She hunted along the stale-smelling corridors with their wallpaper of cerise daisies and poison-green rosettes, streaked in white spots from spilled water, their frayed red and yellow matting, and rows of pine doors painted a sickly blue. She could not find the number. In the darkness at the end of a corridor she had to feel the aluminum figures on the door panels. She was startled once by a man's voice, "'Yep, what do you want?' and fled. When she reached the right door she stood listening. She made out a long sobbing. There was no answer till her third knock, then an alarmed, "'Who is it? Go away!' 
Her hatred of the town turned resolute as she pushed open the door. Yesterday she had seen Fern Mullins in boots and tweed skirt and canary-yellow sweater, fleet and self-possessed. Now she lay across the bed, in crumpled lavender cotton and shabby pumps, very feminine, utterly cowed. She lifted her head in stupid terror. Her hair was in tousled strings and her face was sallow, creased. Her eyes were a blur from weeping. "'I didn't! I didn't!' was all she would say at first, and she repeated it while Carol kissed her cheek, stroked her hair, bathed her forehead. She rested then, while Carol looked about the room. The welcome to strangers, the sanctuary of hospitable Main Street, the lucrative property of Kennicott's friend, Jackson Elder. It smelled of old linen and decaying carpet and ancient tobacco smoke. The bed was rickety, with a thin, knotty mattress. The sand-colored walls were scratched and gouged. In every corner, under everything, were fluffy dust and cigar ashes. On the tilted washstand was a nicked and squatty pitcher. The only chair was a grim straight object of spotty varnish. But there was an altogether splendid gilt and rose cuspidor. She did not try to draw out Fern's story. Fern insisted on telling it. She had gone to the party, not quite liking Cy, but willing to endure him for the sake of dancing, of escaping from Mrs. Bogart's flow of moral comments, of relaxing after the first strained weeks of teaching. Cy promised to be good. He was on the way out. There were a few workmen from Gopher Prairie at the dance, with many young farm people. Half a dozen squatters from a degenerate colony in a brush-hidden hollow, planters of potatoes, suspected thieves, came in noisily drunk. They all pounded the floor of the barn in old-fashioned square dances, swinging their partners, skipping, laughing, under the incantations of Del Snafflin the barber, who fiddled and called the figures. Cy had two drinks from pocket-flasks. Fern saw him fumbling along the overcoats piled on the feed-box at the far end of the barn. Soon after, she heard a farmer declaring that someone had stolen his bottle. She taxed Cy with the theft. He chuckled, "'Oh, it's just a joke. I'm going to give it back.' He demanded that she take a drink. Unless she did, he wouldn't return the bottle. "'I just brushed my lips with it and gave it back to him,' moaned Fern. She sat up, glared at Carol. "'Did you ever take a drink?' "'I have. A few.' I'd love to have one right now. This contact with righteousness has about done me up." Fern could laugh then. So would I. I don't suppose I've had five drinks in my life, but if I meet just one more Bogart and son—well, I didn't really touch that bottle. Horrible raw whiskey, though I'd have loved some wine. I felt so jolly. The barn was almost like a stage scene the high rafters, and the dark stalls, and the tin lantern swinging, and a silage cutter up at the end like some mysterious kind of machine. And I had been having lots of fun dancing with the nicest young farmer, so strong and nice and awfully intelligent. But I got uneasy when I saw how Cy was. So I doubt if I touched two drops of the beastly stuff. Do you suppose God is punishing me for even wanting wine? My dear, Mrs. Bogart's God may be, Main Street's God, but all the courageous intelligent people are fighting him, though he slay us." Fern danced again with the young farmer. 
She forgot Sai while she was talking with a girl who had taken the university agricultural course. Sai could not have returned the bottle. He came staggering toward her, taking time to make himself offensive to every girl on the way and to dance a jig. She insisted on their returning. Sai went with her, chuckling and giggling. He kissed her outside the door. And to think I used to think it was interesting to have men kiss you at a dance. She ignored the kiss, in the need of getting him home before he started a fight. A farmer helped her harness the buggy, while Sai snored in the seat. He woke before they set out. All the way home he alternately slept and tried to make love to her. I'm almost as strong as he is. I managed to keep him away while I drove. Such a rickety buggy. I didn't feel like a girl. I felt like a scrub-woman. No, I guess I was too scared to have any feelings at all. It was terribly dark. I got home somehow, but it was hard, the time I had to get out, and it was quite muddy, to read a signpost. I lit matches that I took from Sai's coat pocket and he followed me. He fell off the buggy step into the mud and got up and tried to make love to me and I was scared. But I hit him. Quite hard and got in and so he ran after the buggy, crying like a baby, and I let him in again and right away again he was trying. But no matter, I got him home. Up on the porch Mrs. Bogart was waiting up. You know, it was funny. All the time she was, oh, talking to me, and Sai was being terribly sick, I just kept thinking, I've still got to drive the buggy down to the livery stable. I wonder if the livery man will be awake. But I got through somehow. I took the buggy down to the stable and got to my room. I locked my door, but Mrs. Bogart kept saying things outside the door, stood out there saying things about me, dreadful things, and rattling the knob. And all the while I could hear Sai in the back yard being sick. I don't think I'll ever marry any man. And then today, she drove me right out of the house. She wouldn't listen to me all morning, just to Sai. I suppose he's over his headache now. Even at breakfast he thought the whole thing was a grand joke. I suppose right this minute he's going around town boasting about his conquest. You understand. Oh, don't you understand? I did keep him away. But I don't see how I can face my school. They say country towns are fine for bringing up boys in, but I can't believe this is me lying here and saying this. I don't believe what happened last night. Oh, this was curious. When I took off my dress last night, it was a darling dress, I loved it so, but of course the mud had spoiled it. I cried over it, and no matter. But my white silk stockings were all torn, and the strange thing is, I don't know whether I caught my legs in the briars when I got out to look at the signpost, or whether Sy scratched me when I was fighting him off. 4. Sam Clark was president of the school board. When Carol told him Fern's story Sam looked sympathetic and neighborly, and Mrs. Clark sat by cooing, Oh, isn't that too bad? Carol was interrupted only when Mrs. Clark begged, Dear, don't speak so bitter about pious people. There's lots of sincere practicing Christians that are real tolerant, like the Champ Perrys. Yes, I know. Unfortunately, there are enough kindly people in the churches to keep them going." When Carol had finished, Mrs. Clark breathed, "'Poor girl! I don't doubt her story a bit!' And Sam rumbled, "'Yeah, sure. 
Miss Mullins is young and reckless, but everybody in town, except Ma Bogart, knows what Sai is. But Miss Mullins was a fool to go with him." "'But not wicked enough to pay for it with disgrace?' "'No, but—' Sam avoided verdicts, clung to the entrancing horrors of the story. Ma Bogart cussed her out all morning, did she? Jumped her neck, eh? Ma certainly is one hellcat. Yes, you know how she is. So vicious. Oh, no. Her best style ain't her viciousness. What she pulls in our store is to come in smiling with Christian fortitude and keep a clerk busy for one hour while she picks out half a dozen fourpenny nails. I remember one time. Sam! Carol was uneasy. You'll fight for Fern, won't you? When Mrs. Bogart came to see you, did she make definite charges? Well, yes, you might say she did. But the school board won't act on them. Guess we'll more or less have to. But you'll exonerate Fern. I'll do what I can for the girl personally, but you know what the board is. There's Reverend Zitterell. Sister Bogart about half runs his church, so of course he'll take her say-so. And Ezra Stowbody, as a banker, he has to be all hell for morality and purity. Might's well admit it, Carrie. I'm afraid there'll be a majority of the board against her. Not that any of us would believe a word Si said, not if he swore it on a stack of Bibles. But still, after all this gossip, Miss Mullins wouldn't hardly be the party to chaperone our basketball team when it went out of town to play other high schools, would she? Perhaps not. But couldn't someone else? Why, that's one of the things she was hired for. Sam sounded stubborn. Do you realize that this isn't just a matter of a job, and hiring and firing, that it's actually sending a splendid girl out with a beastly stain on her, giving all the other Bogarts in the world a chance at her? That's what will happen if you discharge her." Sam moved uncomfortably, looked at his wife, scratched his head, sighed, said nothing. "'Won't you fight for her on the board? If you lose, won't you and whoever agrees with you make a minority report?' No reports made in a case like this. Our rule is to just decide the thing and announce the final decision, whether it's unanimous or not. Rules against a girl's future. Dear God, rules of a school board. Sam, won't you stand by Fern and threaten to resign from the board if they try to discharge her? Rather testy, tired of so many subtleties, he complained, Well, I'll do what I can but I'll have to wait till the board meets. And I'll do what I can, together with this secret admission, of course you and I know what Ma Bogart is, was all Carol could get from Superintendent George Edward Mott, Ezra Stobody, the Reverend Mr. Zitterell, or any other member of the school board. Afterward she wondered whether Mr. Zitterell could have been referring to herself when he observed, "'There's too much license in high places in this town, though, and the wages of sin is death, or anyway, being fired." The holy leer with which the priest said it remained in her mind. She was at the hotel before eight next morning. Fern longed to go to school, to face the tittering, but she was too shaky. Carol read to her all day, and by reassuring her, convinced her own self that the school board would be just. She was less sure of it that evening when, at the motion pictures, she heard Mrs. Gogerling exclaim to Mrs. Howland, "'She may be so innocent and all, and I suppose she probably is, 
but still, if she drank a whole bottle of whiskey at that dance, the way everybody says she did, she may have forgotten she was so innocent, he, he, he!" Maud Dyer, leaning back from her seat, put in, "'That's what I've said all along. I don't want to roast anybody, but have you noticed the way she looks at men?' "'When will they have me on the scaffold?' Carol speculated. Nat Hicks stopped the Kennicotts on their way home. Carol hated him for his manner of assuming that they too had a mysterious understanding. Without quite winking, he seemed to wink at her as he gurgled, "'What do you folks think about this Mullins woman? I'm not straight-laced, but I tell you, we got to have decent women in our schools. Do you know what I heard? They say whatever she may have done afterwards, this Mullins dame took two quarts of whiskey to the dance with her and got stewed before Cy did. Some tank that wren, ha-ha-ha!' <laughs> "'Rats! I don't believe it,' Kennicott muttered. He got Carol away before she was able to speak. She saw Eric passing the house, late, alone, and she stared after him, longing for the lively bitterness of the things he would say about the town. Kennicott had nothing for her but, oh, of course, everybody likes a juicy story, but they don't intend to be mean. She went up to bed proving to herself that the members of the school board were superior men. It was Tuesday afternoon before she learned that the board had met at ten in the morning and voted to accept Miss Fern Mullins' resignation. Sam Clark telephoned the news to her. "'We're not making any charges. We're just letting her resign. Would you like to drop over to the hotel and ask her to write the resignation, now we've accepted it? Glad I could get the board to put it that way. It's thanks to you.' "'But can't you see that the town will take this as proof of the charges?' "'We're not making no charges whatever!' Sam was obviously finding it hard to be patient. Fern left town that evening. Carol went with her to the train. The two girls elbowed through a silent, lip-licking crowd. Carol tried to stare them down, but in face of the impishness of the boys and the bovine gaping of the men, she was embarrassed. Fern did not glance at them. Carol felt her arm tremble, though she was tearless, listless, plodding. She squeezed Carol's hand, said something unintelligible, stumbled up into the vestibule. Carol remembered that Miles Bjornstam had also taken a train. What would be the scene at the station when she herself took departure? She walked uptown behind two strangers. One of them was giggling. "'See that good-looking wench that got on here?' the swell kid with the small black hat? She's some charmer. I was here yesterday, before my jump to Ojibwe Falls, and I heard all about her. Seems she was a teacher, but she certainly was a high roller. Oh, boy! High, wide, and fancy. Her and a couple of other skirts bought a whole case of whiskey and went on a tear, and one night, darn if this bunch of cradle robbers didn't get hold of some young kids, just small boys, and they all got lit up like a white way and went on to a rough-neck dance, and they say—" The narrator turned, saw a woman near, and, not being a common person, nor a coarse workman, but a clever salesman and a householder, lowered his voice for the rest of the tale. During it the other man laughed hoarsely. Carol turned off on a side street. She passed Cy Bogart. He was humorously narrating some achievement to a group which included Nat Hicks, Del Snafflin, Bert Tybee the bartender, 
and A. Tennyson O'Hearn, the shyster lawyer. They were men far older than Sy, but they accepted him as one of their own and encouraged him to go on. It was a week before she received from Fern a letter of which this was a part. And, of course, my family did not really believe the story, but, as they were sure I must have done something wrong, they just lectured me generally, in fact, jawed me till I have gone to live at a boarding-house. The teachers' agencies must know the story. Man at one almost slammed the door in my face when I went to ask about a job, and at another the woman in charge was beastly. Don't know what I will do. Don't seem to feel very well. May marry a fellow that's in love with me, but he's so stupid that he makes me scream. Dear Mrs. Kennicott, you were the only one that believed me. I guess it's a joke on me, I was such a simp. I felt quite heroic while I was driving the buggy back that night and keeping Sy away from me. I guess I expected the people in Gopher Prairie to admire me. I did used to be admired for my athletics at the U. Just five months ago. End of chapter 32、Chapter、33 For a month, which was one suspended moment of doubt, she saw Eric only casually, at an Eastern Star dance, at the shop, where, in the presence of Nat Hicks, they conferred with immense particularity on the significance of having one or two buttons on the cuff of Kennicott's new suit. For the benefit of beholders they were respectably vacuous. Thus barred from him, depressed in the thought of Fern, Carol was suddenly and for the first time convinced that she loved Eric. She told herself a thousand inspiriting things which he would say if he had the opportunity. For them she admired him, loved him. But she was afraid to summon him. He understood. He did not come. She forgot her every doubt of him, and her discomfort in his background. Each day it seemed impossible to get through the desolation of not seeing him. Each morning, each afternoon, each evening was a compartment divided from all other units of time, distinguished by a sudden, Oh, I want to see Eric! which was as devastating as though she had never said it before. There were wretched periods when she could not picture him. Usually he stood out in her mind in some little moment, glancing up from his preposterous pressing iron, or running on the beach with Dave Dyer. But sometimes he had vanished. He was only an opinion. She worried then about his appearance. Weren't his wrists too large and red? Wasn't his nose a snub, like so many Scandinavians? Was he at all the graceful thing she had fancied? When she encountered him on the street she was as much reassuring herself as rejoicing in his presence. More disturbing than being unable to visualize him was the darting remembrance of some intimate aspect his face as they had walked to the boat together at the picnic, the ruddy light on his temples, neck cords, flat cheeks. On a November evening when Kennicott was in the country, she answered the bell and was confused to find Eric at the door, stooped, imploring, his hands in the pockets of his topcoat. As though he had been rehearsing his speech, he instantly besought, "'Saw your husband driving away. I've got to see you. I can't stand it. Come for a walk. 
I know people might see us, but they won't if we hike into the country. I'll wait for you by the elevator. Take as long as you want to. Oh, come quick. In a few minutes, she promised. She murmured, I'll just talk to him for a quarter of an hour and come home. She put on her tweed coat and rubber overshoes, considering how honest and hopeless are rubbers, how clearly their chaperonage proved that she wasn't going to a lover's tryst. She found him in the shadow of the grain elevator, sulkily kicking at a rail of the side-track. As she came toward him she fancied that his whole body expanded. But he said nothing, nor she. He patted her sleeve, she returned the pat, and they crossed the railroad tracks, found a road, clumped toward open country. Chilly night, but I like this melancholy gray, he said. Yes. They passed a moaning clump of trees and splashed along the wet road. He tucked her hand into the side pocket of his overcoat. She caught his thumb and, sighing, held it exactly as Hugh held hers when they went walking. She thought about Hugh. The current maid was in for the evening, but was it safe to leave the baby with her? The thought was distant and elusive. Eric began to talk, slowly, revealingly. He made for her a picture of his work in a large tailor shop in Minneapolis. The steam and heat, and the drudgery. The men in darned vests and crumpled trousers men who rushed growlers of beer and were cynical about women, who laughed at him and played jokes on him. But I don't mind, because I could keep away from them outside. I used to go to the Art Institute and the Walker Gallery, and tramp clear around Lake Harriet, or hike out to the Gates House and imagine it was a chateau in Italy and I lived in it. I was a Marquise and collected tapestries. That was after I was wounded in Padua. The only really bad time was when a tailor named Finkelfarb found a diary I was trying to keep and he read it aloud in the shop. It was a bad fight. He laughed. I got fined five dollars. But that's all gone now. Seems as though you stand between me and the gas stoves, the long flames with mauve edges, licking up around the irons and making that sneering sound all day. Ah! Her fingers tightened about his thumb as she perceived the hot low room, the pounding of the pressing irons, the reek of scorched cloth, and Eric among giggling gnomes. His fingertip crept through the opening of her glove and smoothed her palm. She snatched her hand away, stripped off her glove, tucked her hand back into his. He was saying something about a wonderful person. In her tranquility she let the words blow by and heeded only the beating wings of his voice. She was conscious that he was fumbling for impressive speech. "'Say, uh, Carol, I've written a poem about you.' "'That's nice. Let's hear it.' "'Damn it! Don't be so casual about it. Can't you take me seriously?' "'My dear boy, if I took you seriously... I don't want us to be hurt more than... more than we will be. Tell me the poem. I've never had a poem written about me.' It isn't really a poem. It's just some words that I love because it seems to me they catch what you are. Of course, probably, they won't seem so to anybody else, but, well... Little and tender and merry and wise, with eyes that meet my eyes. Do you get the idea the way I do? 
Yes, I'm terribly grateful. And she was grateful, while she impersonally noted how bad a verse it was. She was aware of the haggard beauty in the lowering night. Monstrous tattered clouds sprawled round a forlorn moon. Puddles and rocks glistened with inner light. They were passing a grove of scrub poplars, feeble by day, but looming now like a menacing wall. She stopped. They heard the branches dripping, the wet leaves sullenly plumping on the soggy earth. "'Waiting, waiting, everything is waiting,' she whispered. She drew her hand from his, pressed her clenched fingers against her lips. She was lost in the somberness. "'I am happy. So we must go home, before we have time to become unhappy. But can't we sit on a log for a minute and just listen?' "'No, too wet. But I wish we could build a fire, and you could sit on my overcoat beside it. I'm a grand fire-builder.' My cousin Lars and me spent a week one time in a cabin, way up in the big woods, snowed in. The fireplace was filled with a dome of ice when we got there, but we chopped it out and jammed the thing full of pine boughs. Couldn't we build a fire back here in the woods and sit by it for a while?" She pondered, halfway between yielding and refusal. Her head ached faintly. She was in abeyance. Everything—the night, his silhouette, the cautious treading future was as undistinguishable as though she were drifting bodiless in a fourth dimension. While her mind groped, the lights of a motor-car swooped round a bend in the road, and they stood farther apart. "'What ought I to do?' she mused. "'I think—oh, I won't be robbed. I am good. If I'm so enslaved that I can't sit by the fire with a man and talk, then I'd better be dead.' The lights of the thrumming car grew magically, were upon them, abruptly stopped. From behind the dimness of the windshield a voice, annoyed, sharp, "'Hello there!' She realized that it was Kennicott. The irritation in his voice smoothed out. "'Having a walk?' They made schoolboyish sounds of assent. "'Pretty wet, isn't it? Better ride back. Jump in front here, Valborg.' His manner of swinging open the door was a command. Carol was conscious that Eric was climbing in, that she was apparently to sit in the back, and that she had been left to open the rear door for herself. Instantly the wonder which had flamed to the gutsy skies was quenched, and she was Mrs. W. P. Kennicott of Gopher Prairie, riding in a squeaking old car and likely to be lectured by her husband. She feared what Kennicott would say to Eric. She bent toward them. Kennicott was observing. "'Going to have some rain before the night's over, all right?' "'Yes,' said Eric. "'Been funny season this year, anyway. Never saw it with such a cold October and such a nice November. Remember we had a snow way back on October 9th? But it certainly was nice up to the 21st this month. As I remember it, not a flake of snow in November so far, has there been?' But I shouldn't wonder if we'd be having some snow most any time now." "'Yes, good chance of it,' said Eric. "'Wish I'd had more time to go after the ducks this fall. By golly, what do you think?' Kennicott sounded appealing. "'Fellow wrote me from Mantrap Lake that he shot seven mallards and a couple of canvas back in one hour.' "'That must have been fine,' said Eric. Carol was ignored. 
but Kennicott was blusterously cheerful. He shouted to a farmer, as he slowed up to pass the frightened team, "'There we are! Schon gut!' She sat back, neglected, frozen, unheroic heroine in a drama insanely undramatic. She made a decision resolute and enduring. She would tell Kennicott. What would she tell him? She could not say that she loved Eric. Did she love him? But she would have it out. She was not sure whether it was pity for Kennicott's blindness or irritation at his assumption that he was enough to fill any woman's life which prompted her, but she knew that she was out of the trap, that she could be frank, and she was exhilarated with the adventure of it, while in front he was entertaining Eric. Nothing like an hour on a duck pass to make you relish your victuals, and, gosh, this machine hasn't got the power of a fountain pen. Guess the cylinders are jam-cram full of carbon again. Don't know but what maybe I'll have to put in another set of piston rings." He stopped on Main Street and clucked hospitably. "'There, that'll give you just a block to walk. Good night.' Carol was in suspense. Would Eric sneak away? He stoutedly moved to the back of the car, thrust in his hand, muttered, "'Good night, Carol. I'm glad we had our walk.' She pressed his hand. The car was flapping on. He was hidden from her, by a corner drugstore on Main Street. Kennicott did not recognize her till he drew up before the house. Then he condescended, "'Better jump out here and I'll take the boat around back. Say, see if the back door is unlocked, will you?' She unlatched the door for him. She realized that she still carried the damp glove she had stripped off for Eric. She drew it on. She stood in the center of the living room, unmoving, in damp coat and muddy rubbers. Kennicott was as opaque as ever. Her task wouldn't be anything so lively as having to endure a scolding, but only an exasperating effort to command his attention so that he would understand the nebulous thing she had to tell him, instead of interrupting her by yawning, winding the clock, and going up to bed. She heard him shoveling coal into the furnace. He came through the kitchen energetically, but before he spoke to her he did stop in the hall, did wind the clock. He sauntered into the living-room, and his glance passed from her drenched hat to her smeared rubbers. She could hear, she could hear, see, taste, smell, touch, his, "'Better take off your coat, Carrie. Looks kind of wet.' Yes, there it was. "'Well, Carrie, you better—' He chucked his own coat on a chair, stalked to her, went on with a rising, tingling voice. "'You better cut it out now. I'm not going to do the outraged husband stunt. I like you, and I respect you, and I'd probably look like a boob if I tried to be dramatic. But I think it's about time for you and Valborg to call a halt before you get in Dutch, like Fern Mullins did." "'Do you?' "'Course. I know all about it. What do you expect in a town that's as filled with busybodies, that have plenty of time to stick their noses into other folks' business as this is? Not that they have the nerve to do much tattling to me, but they've hinted around a lot and anyway I could see for myself that you liked him. But, of course, I knew how cold you were. I knew you wouldn't stand it even if Valborg did try to hold your hand or kiss you, so I didn't worry. But same time, I hope you don't suppose this husky young Swede farmer is as innocent and platonic and all that stuff as you are. Wait now, don't get sore. I'm not knocking him. He isn't a bad sort, and he's young and likes to gas about books. Of course you like him. That isn't the real rub. 
but haven't you just seen what this town can do once it goes and gets a moral on you like it did with Fern? You probably think that two young folks making love are alone if anybody ever is, but there's nothing in this town that you don't do in company with a whole lot of uninvited but awful interested guests. Don't you realize that if Ma Westlake and a few others get started, they'd drive you up a tree, and you'd find yourself so well advertised as being in love with this Valborg fellow that you'd have to be just to spite him? Let me sit down, was all Carol could say. She drooped on the couch, wearily, without elasticity. He yawned. Give me your coat and rubbers. And while she stripped them off, he twiddled his watch chain, felt the radiator, peered at the thermometer. He shook out her wraps in the hall, hung them up with exactly his usual care. He pushed a chair near to her and sat bolt up. He looked like a physician about to give sound and undesired advice. Before he could launch into his heavy discourse, she desperately got in, "'Please, I want you to know that I was going to tell you everything tonight.' "'Well, I don't suppose there's really much to tell.' "'But there is. I'm fond of Eric. He appeals to something in here.' She touched her breast. And I admire him. He isn't just a young Swede farmer. He's an artist. Wait now. He's had a chance all evening to tell you what a whale of a fine fellow he is. Now it's my turn. I can't talk artistic, but... Carrie, do you understand my work? He leaned forward, thick, capable hands on thick, sturdy thighs, mature and slow, yet beseeching. No matter even if you are cold, I like you better than anybody in the world. One time I said that you were my soul, and that still goes. You're all the things that I see in a sunset when I'm driving in from the country, the things that I like but can't make poetry of. Do you realize what my job is? I go round twenty-four hours a day, in mud and blizzard, trying my damnedest to heal everybody, rich or poor. You that are always spieling about how scientists ought to rule the world, instead of a bunch of spread-eagle politicians, can't you see that I'm all the science there is here? And I can stand the cold and the bumpy roads and the lonely rides at night. All I need is to have you here at home to welcome me. I don't expect you to be passionate. Not any more, I don't. But I do expect you to appreciate my work. I bring babies into the world and save lives and make cranky husbands quit being mean to their wives, and then you go and moon over a Swede tailor because he can talk about how to put ruchings on a skirt. Hell of a thing for a man to fuss over." She flew out at him. "'You make your side clear. Let me give mine. I admit all you say, except about Eric. But is it only you and the baby that want me to back you up, that demand things from me? They're all on me, the whole town. I can feel their hot breaths on my neck. Aunt Bessie and that horrible slavering old Uncle Whittier and Juanita and Mrs. Westlake and Mrs. Bogart and all of them. And you welcome them. You encourage them to drag me down into their cave. I won't stand it. Do you hear? Now, right now, I'm done. And it's Eric who gives me the courage. You say he just thinks about rooches, which do not usually go on skirts, by the way. I tell you, he thinks about God, the God that Mrs. Bogart covers up with greasy gingham wrappers. Eric will be a great man some day, and if I could contribute one tiny bit to his success—' "'Wait, wait, wait now. Hold up. 
you're assuming that your Eric will make good. As a matter of fact, at my age he'll be running a one-man tailor shop in some burg about the size of Schoenstrom. He will not. That's what he's headed for now, all right, and he's twenty-five or six, and what's he done to make you think he'll ever be anything but a pants-presser? He has sensitiveness and talent. Wait now, what has he actually done in the art line? Has he done one first-class picture, or sketch, do you call it? Or one poem, or played the piano, or anything except gas about what he's going to do?" She looked thoughtful. Then it's a hundred-to-one shot that he never will. Way I understand it, even these fellows that do something pretty good at home and get to go to art school, there ain't more than one out of ten of them, maybe one out of a hundred, that ever get above grinding out a bum living, about as artistic as plumbing. And when it comes down to this tailor, why, can't you see, you that take on so about psychology, can't you see that it's just by contrast with folks like Doc McGannum or Lime Cass that this fellow seems artistic? Suppose you met up with him first in one of these regular New York studios. You wouldn't notice him any more than a rabbit." She huddled over folded hands like a temple virgin shivering on her knees before the thin warmth of a brazier. She could not answer. Kennicott rose quickly, sat on the couch, took both her hands. Suppose he fails, as he will. Suppose he goes back to tailoring, and you're his wife. Is that going to be this artistic life you've been thinking about? He's in some bum shack, pressing pants all day, or stooped over sewing, and having to be polite to any grouch that blows in and jams a dirty stinking old suit in his face and says, here you fix this, and be blame quick about it. He won't even have enough savvy to get him a big shop. He'll pike along doing his own work, unless you, his wife, go help him, go help him in the shop, and stand over a table all day, pushing a big heavy iron. Your complexion will look fine after about fifteen years of baking that way, won't it? And you'll be humped over like an old hag. And probably you'll live in one room back of the shop. And then at night, oh, you'll have your artist, sure. He'll come in sticking of gasoline and cranky from hard work, and hinting around that if it hadn't been for you, he'd have gone east and been a great artist. Sure. And you'll be entertaining his relatives. Talk about Uncle Wit. You'll be having some old Axel Axelberg coming in with manure on his boots and sitting down to supper in his socks and yelling at you, Hurry up now! You women make me sick! Yes, and you'll have a squalling brat every year, tugging at you while you press clothes, and you won't love him like you do Hugh upstairs, all downy and asleep. Please, not any more. Her face was on his knee. He bent to kiss her neck. I don't want to be unfair. I guess love is a great thing, all right. But think it would stand much of that kind of stuff. Oh, honey, am I so bad? Can't you like me at all? I've... I've been so fond of you." She snatched up his hand, she kissed it. Presently she sobbed, I won't ever see him again. I can't now. The hot living room behind the tailor shop, I don't love him enough for that. And you are... Even if I were sure of him, sure he was the real thing, I don't think I could actually leave you. This marriage, it weaves people together. It's not easy to break, even when it ought to be broken." And do you want to break it? No. He lifted her, carried her upstairs, laid her on her bed, turned to the door. 
Come kiss me, she whimpered. He kissed her lightly and slipped away. For an hour she'd heard him moving about his room, lighting a cigar, drumming with his knuckles on a chair. She felt that he was a bulwark between her and the darkness that grew thicker as the delayed storm came down in sleet. 2. He was cheery and more casual than ever at breakfast. All day she tried to devise a way of giving Eric up. Telephone? The village central would unquestioningly listen in. A letter? It might be found. Go to see him? Impossible. That evening Kennicott gave her, without comment, an envelope. The letter was signed E.V. I know I can't do anything but make trouble for you, I think. I'm going to Minneapolis tonight, and from there, as soon as I can, either to New York or Chicago. I will do as big things as I can. I... I can't write I love you too much. God keep you." Until she heard the whistle which told her that the Minneapolis train was leaving town, she kept herself from thinking, from moving. Then it was all over. She had no plan nor desire for anything. When she caught Kennicott looking at her over his newspaper, she fled to his arms, thrusting the paper aside. And for the first time in years they were lovers. But she knew that she still had no plan in life, save always to go along the same streets, past the same people, to the same shops. 3. A week after Eric's going, the maid startled her by announcing, "'There's a Mr. Valborg downstairs. Say he want to see you.' She was conscious of the maid's interested stare, angry at the shattering of the calm in which she had hidden. She crept down, peeped into the living room. It was not Eric Valborg who stood there. It was a small, gray-bearded, yellow-faced man in mucky boots, canvas jacket, and red mittens. He glowered at her with shrewd red eyes. "'You the doc's wife?' "'Yes.' "'I'm Adolf Valborg, from up by Jefferson.' I'm Eric's father." Oh! He was a monkey-faced little man, and not gentle. What you done with my son? I don't think I understand you. I think you're going to understand before I get through. Where is he? Why, really, I presume he's in Minneapolis. You presume? He looked through her with a contemptuous such as she could not have imagined. Only an insane contortion of spelling could betray his lyric whine, his mangled consonants. He clamored, "'Presume! That's a fine word. I don't want no fine words, and I don't want no more lies. I want to know what you know.' "'See here, Mr. Valborg, you may stop this bullying right now. I'm not one of your farm women. I don't know where your son is, and there's no reason why I should know.' Her defiance ran out in face of his immense flaxen stolidity. He raised his fist, worked up his anger with the gesture, and sneered, "'You dirty city women with your fine ways and fine dresses! A father come here trying to save his boy from wickedness, and you call him a bully! By God, I don't have to take nothing off you, nor your husband! I ain't one of your hired men! For one time a woman like you is going to hear the truth about what you are, and no fine city words to it, neither. Really, Mr. Valborg, what you done with him, hey? I used tell you what you done. He was a good boy, even if he was a damn fool. 
I want him back on the farm. He don't make enough money tailoring, and I can't get me no hired man. I want to take him back on the farm, and you butt in and fool with him and make love with him and get him to run away." "'You are lying. It's not true that—it's not true, and if it were, you have no right to speak like this.' "'Don't talk foolish. I know. Ain't I heard from a fellow that live right here in town how you been acting with the boy? I know what you done. Walking with him in the country, hiding in the woods with him. Yes, and I guess you talk about religion in the woods. Sure, women like you. You're worse than the street walkers. Rich women like you, with fine husbands and no decent work to do. And me. Look at my hands. Look how I work. Look at those hands. But you, oh, God, no. You mustn't work. You're too fine to do decent work. You got to play with young fellows, younger as you are, laughing and rolling around and acting like the animals. You let my son alone, do you hear?" He was shaking his fist in her face. She could smell the manure and sweat. It ain't no use talking to women like you. Get no truth out of you. But next time I go by your husband. He was marching into the hall. Carol flung herself on him her clenching hand on his hasty, dusty shoulder. "'You horrible old man! You've always tried to turn Eric into a slave, to fatten your pocketbook. You've sneered at him and overworked him, and probably you've succeeded in preventing his ever rising above your muck-heap. And now, because you can't drag him back, you come here to vent. Go tell my husband, go tell him, and don't blame me when he kills you. When my husband kills you, he will kill you.' The man grunted looked at her impassively, said one word, and walked out. She heard the word very plainly. She did not quite reach the couch. Her knees gave way, she pitched forward. She heard her mind saying, "'You haven't fainted. This is ridiculous. You're simply dramatizing yourself. Get up!' But she could not move. When Kennicott arrived she was lying on the couch. His step quickened. "'What's happened, Carrie?' You haven't got a bit of blood in your face." She clutched his arm. "'You've got to be sweet to me and kind. I'm going to California. Mountains. Sea. Please don't argue about it, because I'm going.' Quietly. "'All right. We'll go. You and I. Leave the kid here with Aunt Bessie.' "'Now!' "'Well, yes, just as soon as we can get away.' "'Now, don't talk any more. Just imagine you've already started." He smoothed her hair, and not till after supper did he continue. I meant it about California, but I think we'd better wait three weeks or so, till I get hold of some young fellow released from the medical corps to take my practice, and if people are gossiping you don't want to give them a chance by running away. Can you stand it and face them for three weeks or so?" Yes, she said emptily. Four. People covertly stared at her on the street. Aunt Bessie tried to catechize her about Eric's disappearance, and it was Kennicott who silenced the woman with a savage, "'Say, are you hinting that Carrie had anything to do with that fellow's beating it? Then let me tell you, and you can go right out and tell the whole bloomin' town, that Carrie and I took Val, took Eric riding, and he asked me about getting a better job in Minneapolis, and I advised him to go to it. Getting much sugar in at the store now?' Guy Pollock crossed the street to be pleasant apropos of California and new novels. Vida Sherwin dragged her to the Jolly Seventeen. 
There, with everyone rigidly listening, Maud Dyer shot at Carol. "'I hear Eric has left town.' Carol was amiable. "'Yes, so I hear. In fact, he called me up, told me he had been offered a lovely job in the city.' "'So sorry he's gone. He would have been valuable if we tried to start the Dramatic Association again. Still, I wouldn't be here for the Association myself, because Will is all in from work, and I'm thinking of taking him to California. Juanita, you know the coast so well. Tell me, would you start in at Los Angeles or San Francisco, and what are the best hotels?" The Jolly Seventeen looked disappointed, but the Jolly Seventeen liked to give advice. The Jolly Seventeen liked to mention the expensive hotels at which they had stayed, a meal counted as a stay. Before they could question her again, Carol escorted in with drum and fife the topic of Ramy Weatherspoon. Vida had news from her husband. He had been gassed in the trenches, had been in a hospital for two weeks, had been promoted to major, was learning French. She left Hugh with Aunt Bessie. But for Kennicott she would have taken him. She hoped that in some miraculous way yet unrevealed she might find it possible to remain in California. She did not want to see Gopher Prairie again. The Smales were to occupy the Kennicott house, and quite the hardest thing to endure in the month of waiting was the series of conferences between Kennicott and Uncle Whittier in regard to heating the garage and having the furnace flues cleaned. Did Carol, Kennicott inquired, wish to stop in Minneapolis to buy new clothes? No, I want to get as far away as I can as soon as I can. Let's wait till Los Angeles. Sure, sure, just as you like. Cheer up. We're going to have a large, wide time, and everything will be different when we come back. 4. Dusk on a snowy December afternoon. The sleeper, which would connect at Kansas City with the California train, rolled out of St. Paul with a chick-a-chick, chick-a-chick, chick-a-chick as it crossed the other tracks. It bumped through the factory belt, gained speed. Carol could see nothing but gray fields, which had closed in on her all the way from Gopher Prairie. Ahead was darkness. For an hour, in Minneapolis, I must have been near Eric. He's still there, somewhere. He'll be gone when I come back. I'll never know where he has gone." As Kennicott switched on the seat-light, she turned drearily to the illustrations in a motion-picture magazine. End of chapter 33「At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.